Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode. I have a quick announcement before we get started. I have a new book out, and it's totally free for my listeners. And you know what? I'm not even publishing this book on Amazon. I just think this is really valuable. I want you guys to read it and I want to give it to you. It's called The Side Hustle Bible. I wrote this book because the economy is changing. You need side hustles to break the barriers of corporate America and live the life of freedom that we all want to live, to choose yourself. I love the idea of trying lots of things to make money and seeing what works and what doesn't. And this book is a collection of proven opportunities, 177 to be exact, to turn your hobby or existing skills into an entirely new source of income. That's why I called it the Side Hustle Bible. All you have to do is go to www.jamesfreebooks.com. That's www.jamesfreebooks.com. Each method has the potential to move you closer to that new car, new house, or vacation. These strategies are tested and proven. But don't take my word for it. You will see in the chapters. Go to jamesfreebooks.com to see how others have created a profitable side hustle with this free book. All these people took action on just one of the ideas in this book. I'm excited about what this book can do for people. I hope you let me know what it does for you. I love to hear results. Claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible today before they're gone. The first step is grabbing your free copy by going to www.jamesfreebooks.com. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Everyone's a work in progress. And since you're a work in progress, it's very hard to know yourself, but there's certain deep essential characteristics or values. And when you violate those, you feel the artificiality. Or you don't because you're not aware or you're afraid when people see the real you, even though that could be the most powerful potion for success. Yeah, and I'll add one more because you really have been inspiring to me and I think millions of other people in this respect is what weirdness or... I'm insulted now. No, no, no. This is going somewhere good. Let me finish. Like what weirdness or weakness that I've made an attempt to hide could I actually really dive headfirst into and explore and embrace and possibly share? I think that is a superpower. Really embracing your your authentically weird self 
because you know, normal people are just folks you don't know well enough yet, right? <laughs> There's nobody's normal. We're so full of stuff and trauma and nonsense and silly beliefs. It's like everybody's full of that stuff. Tim Ferriss, welcome back to the podcast. How many times have you been on? I feel like thrilled to be here. You've been on when I started the podcast. You came on. I went on your podcast. Uh, you, we went on again for Tools of the Titans. Now we're going for your latest book, Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, uh, which I have to say, once again, is an excellent book. Thank it's, you. it's up there. It's, I feel like it's a companion book to Tools of the Titans, which at the time I thought was your, your best book. There was just I mean, I would just sit there and read it and reread it even long after. You Normally I read a book to prepare for the podcast, but after our podcast, I just read it and reread it because there's so much great life advice and it's hard to remember everything. And this is like that. It's like not even a sequel. It's just like a continuation of that. It's a, it's a continuation. And for me, uh, I, I view everything that I do, each project as an experiment. So one of the things from Tools of Titans that I took away as really valuable was the format. And so having these shorter profiles mm. and the Q&A format, I think, is very natural. I mean, going all the way back to sort of the Socratic method and so on, Q&As are very naturally absorbed. And this time around, I decided, well, rather than me revisiting highlights from the podcast, what if I took the questions that I've now refined, the sequence of those questions that I've now figured out, and sent it out to people who I might not be able to get on the podcast, or people who really fall outside the usual sphere of my conversation to ask them these questions that just work. And so this one is all of the format learnings from uh, from Tools of Titans, but with almost an entirely new cast of characters. Right, because also, uh, and we were just talking about this before the podcast started, it's how can you get as much quality, maybe more, maybe a little bit less, doesn't matter, just as much quality with even, as you were saying right before the podcast, fewer moving pieces. So if you don't have to like schedule someone for a podcast, but you can still get just about the same kind of quality of life advice and then compile it into a book, you're going to create a book as good as Tools of the Titans, which was an amazing book. Yeah, or or better in some cases because I realized, for instance, there were people I found deeply fascinating, uh, like Temple Grandin, who's known for many different things. There have been both documentaries and feature films made about her life, uh, one starring Claire Danes. She is known for being an animal behavior expert, and uh, she's redesigned many of the slaughterhouses in the United States to be more humane. And she has autism. And uh, one of her, I suppose, gifts, if you want to look at it that way, is that given the way her mind works, she can, say, get down to the level of the, the eye line of, say, a given animal going through a shoot and visualize how they'll respond to shadows and light and so on and then design a more humane experience. It's really wild. Yeah. And uh, she is, she, it would be a very challenging podcast interview. I've met her once before and that's not necessarily her superpower, but on a keyboard, it's a different story. Right? So I was able to send questions to her who's been, she's just been this 
this fascinating figure kind of at the periphery. I've read her books, I've watched the movies, uh, but I didn't know how to interact. And then I realized, my God, like I can just take what I've learned through these hundreds of conversations and translate it to a format that allows someone like Temple or someone in a foreign country who needs a translator to then send me their thought through answers. I mean, you have, you have, I mean, hundreds and I, I don't know about hundreds, but you have so many great people that you reached out to. Uh, you know, some of them are mutual friends of ours, like Stephen Pressfield, uh, Susan Cain, uh, Naval Ravikant, who's been on the, on the podcast. Uh, actually all of those have been on and, uh, Matt Ridley, who's like, would be a dream guest for me, but he's in England usually oh. being the smartest man in the world or whatever <laughs> he does. Uh, you know, Dustin Moskowitz, uh, Patton Oswald, who would be Ben Stiller, uh, you know, Vitalik Buterin, who's founded Ethereum, Annie Duke, the po- I mean, it goes on and on, yeah. the, the, the people you have. Uh, and I think there's, I think, there's two directions. I was thinking about this podcast. There's like two or three directions we could go. One is all of these guys give you such great advice that it's really worthwhile seeing all of these peak performers dissect their own peak performance through your lens because you're you're also obsessed with peak performance. That's how you've modeled your whole life, I'd say these past 15 years. And taking your expertise and understanding peak performance and breaking down what they sent to you uh, is you know we can go through each person and we will in a little bit not each person <laughs> but but many of them and what we can learn from their advice but then I, I kind of want to um start off with with your creative process like uh, it's been a uh, year or so since tools of of tight is it tools of tight tools of the Titans. tools of titans yeah and I should remember it because there's a chapter about me that's why it's your, <laughs> that's why it's your best book uh, this is, now wait didn't you write me an email with these questions how come I'm not in this book. I feel like you wrote me an email with some of these questions in it, and I answered. Jeez, <laughs> no, I'll have to go back and look. I'm Maybe. in the next one. Yeah, you'd have to Tribes be. Tribes of almost mentors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so so yeah, so you. I remember um, last time we spoke, you gave me advice, and it was really good advice. Which is, you know, we were just talking in general about TV show versus podcast. You had just been through your whole TV show experience, and I was talking about TV shows and podcasts. And you said, triple down, quadruple down in your podcast, which is what I've done, and it's been great advice. And then you went off and did another TV show. <laughs> so, <laughs> just what, what was the story of that? Like Vince Vaughn approached you. Yeah, blah, Vince, blah, blah. So, yeah, yeah. So, Vince Vaughn, who had listened to my podcast, reached out through his production company to, do a television show, which would, in effect, be the podcast on stage with the ability to pull in clips and visuals and so on that we could use for for storytelling. By storytelling, meaning having like archival video, exactly, exactly, archival video or photographs that maybe the guests themselves hadn't seen in decades, mm-hmm. uh, to help bring them to an emotional place that is sometimes difficult to reach with words alone. And the studio audience also adds an entirely new element. And when I'm looking at opportunities like that uh, and many others, I view them through a few filters now. So number one is... Do you mind if I I write a little bit of this down? I don't mind at all. So uh, there are a series of questions, not necessarily in this order, but one would be, what is the opportunity cost? So if 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 the and what is the total ask 
in terms of my responsibilities. So are they asking, do they want to work with me for just production? In which case, maybe it can be encapsulated in a two-week period of time where we batch everything, which is what we ended up doing in terms but, of... And, and I want to say why this is important in this context. Your first TV show, when I watch that, I think to myself, I actually think feel bad for you because I realize uh, doing a re- your first show was, you know, get, you're given a kind of assignment and a week to get good enough on drums to perform with Foreigner on stage or something like that. Right. That requires so much work and filming. It's I could never imagine it's, doing it. It's inconceivable to me that we went on that suicide mission. I'm very happy with how that's oh, that was the Tim Ferriss experiment, how it turned out. But it was such a such a painful and punishing experience for everyone. I mean, we filmed for 13 weeks straight. So if there was an injury, if I like broke one of my ribs or ha- tore like every muscle in both legs from a fall, which happened. Uh, or like split some muscle in my forearm, too bad. It's like you wrap it up, you go see a doctor, you do what you can, and then you're onto the drums. And 13 weeks, so that's a quarter of a year of your life. You can't really do anything else. Yeah, no, you can do zero else. And also because I was biting off, this is fairly typical of me, but uh, biting off, overestimating my bandwidth. So I was not only on camera trying to do, in some cases, some very dangerous things like parkour and uh, rally car racing and so on, some really dangerous stuff, uh, which led to quite a few injuries. I was also an executive producer. So I would finish a full day of filming and beating myself up and then go back, have a short dinner and sit down and review tape for like another three to four hours before going to bed. It was it was really an, an insane, insane process. But more and more so, and we were chatting a little bit about this before we started recording, I think for the majority of my life, I've I've prided myself on having a very high pain tolerance and an ability to hold complexity in my mind in a way that may be, may be somewhat uncommon. So I can handle complexity. I can really keep a lot of pieces up in the air at the same time. What do you mean by complexity? Uh, what I mean by complexity in this case is, good question, many different moving pieces. So imagine, say, like a fine watch where you flip it over and you look at the casing and it's clear and you can observe thousands of tiny mechanical details that hold this small thing together. Uh, mentally, I could compartmentalize many of these pieces and interrelate them in a way so that I, can, I could pattern match, but I could also, in short-term memory, maybe that's uh, the best way to put it, in like short-term memory and working memory, I can, I can hold quite a few bits at the same time. Therefore, given my strengths, and this is sort of underlying a message, which is sometimes you shouldn't do what you're good at <laughs> or that you have a high capacity for, I would therefore... Yeah, because who wants pain even if you right, can handle Right, but it? <laughs> in the interest of being number one, because I'm very competitive and I, I've, I've, through a lot of coaching and meaning athletic coaching and working with other people, I mean, my mentality, my mental model for so long and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think I still have some of it was, you know, second place is first loser. So it's just like silver is an also ran, like it's gold or nothing. And therefore I would pick these missions or projects that were highly complex. So it would favor my strength, high degree of pain because I knew no one else would do it. And that was the differentiator. But even if you win in a scenario like that, it's, 
quite the Pyrrhic victory, right? So you win, but you don't really win. You do so much damage in the process. And to reel it back, just to, to come back to your original question, in the last few years, what I've been asking instead is, what, what might this look like if it were easy? That question has changed my life in so many ways in the last few years. It, it, it's, it's, so, 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 uh, so one way is, uh, let's not talk about this book for a second. Yeah, yeah. Give me but the TV show. The TV yeah, show would be a great okay. example. Yeah, so yeah. what would this look like if it were easy? Number one, things wouldn't be scattered. So the filming would have to be batched. Right. Number two, there would be no protracted negotiation whatsoever. So there would be certain non-negotiable pieces that I knew would be straining the boundaries of what a normal deal looks like. Like what, what was it? What was Such one? as I, as a safeguard against distribution issues that have popped up in the past with television. Because I've always, I, I feel very, very confident that all the TV I've done has, has been very, very, very high quality. But that does not really matter all that much if it only gets to 10 people. So distribution is continually a huge challenge for all sorts of media, including television. And to protect myself against the, the downside, right? So the, in addition to what's the opportunity cost, what I'll ask is, what are the worst things that could happen? Like, and uh, that's very often related to what are the pieces I don't control, right? So in distribution, it could be we make this great show and then it gets put out, but for whatever reason, only a few thousand people see it. All right, how do I protect against that? Is there anything that I could do to counteract that? And the answer was, I would get the contractual right to use audio excerpts up to a certain length and with other conditions if needed to use in the podcast. And that could counteract any unknown variables that could screw things up, which ended up actually being very, very necessary. And so on and so forth. So what would this look like if it were easy? Well, I would have them help with guest booking and all logistics. Mm. Uh, what would this look like if, if it were easy? I wouldn't try to reinvent the wheel. So instead of trying to become... James Lipton of Inside the Actor Studio or something, I would, I would spend at least half of the time that I'm interviewing them using what I already know works, like the rapid fire questions and you know, what books have you gifted the most to other people and why. These questions that I know tend to pull out really good conversations. That's so interesting because I'll ask, not necessarily rapid fire, but like I just did, I'll interrupt just with my curiosity, but I don't have like um, kind of these pre-canned rapid fire yeah. questions. So I think different approaches for you, the rapid fire I think works really well because, yeah. because you're seeking for a broad answer. Like like we'll talk about it in Tribe of Mentors, what makes you say no? This is something that's incredibly important to you. So you'll so that's an, an easy rapid fire thing that you're able to work around and work around their answer. Yeah, and there's no there's no one way, right? If you look at Terry Gross, you look at Charlie Rose. You look at James Lipton. So James Lipton is an example. Inside the actor studio, almost everyone has seen one of these. They're incredibly well done. They record for something like three or four hours. They cut it down to whatever it is, 60 minutes. James has his, his blue cards. He never deviates in the order. He knows the answer to every single question. And that's what works for him. Like That is what fits his personality. That would bore me to death. I wouldn't want to do that. And uh, on the other hand, if you look at, say, uh, my format, it's a reflection of my personality. And it's a reflection of how I like to tinker. So I have a very large freeform portion of the conversation. But then there's the part of me that loves to take a question and tweak one word and see how 
it produces a different result. Like, okay, I'm gonna, I want to ask a close cousin of this question I asked last time, but I'm going to tweak one word and see what happens. And it's like, ooh, that worked. Okay, now I'm really interested. So it seems like like a little bit in your creative process is this meta side where you're kind of saying, okay, this is what I've done the last five times. Let's experiment with it a little more and see the reaction. Totally. And that that is mirrored in almost everything that I do. I mean, whether it's tracking workouts since I was age 16. Or relationships? Relationships also. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, I, I will... Uh, and I'm not robotic, overly robotic about it, but I, I don't think, I think it's uh, unhelpful to try to be Spock in most relationships, but it's also unhelpful to just fly by the seat of your pants at all times. I, I, at least for me, that doesn't work. So what's, what's like an inner, what, uh, what's in the middle there that, that, that you tweak with? Well, for instance, uh, if, if I know that I am historically bad at remembering important dates, <laughs> birthdays, anniversaries, things like this. I, I mean, historically terrible. Like even my family members, I'm like, oh shit, you know, it's some very dear family members like birthday yesterday or today, like to safeguard against that, put it in the calendar. Like put, <laughs> it's such a simple thing, but I, I, I want to use tools and process when possible to defend against my lesser self or weaker self, whatever that might be. So there's certain things in relationships like, okay, don't be a dummy. Like a week before X happens, you need to go find a gift. And you took notes on your phone when like, when your girlfriend went to the bathroom two weeks ago because she mentioned a few things that might allow you to find a good gift so that you're not caught with your pants down and make a big you know, embarrassing mess of things. And uh, I, 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 I don't... Uh, I find that to be very helpful. Simultaneously, you know, if everything's scripted, just like in an interview format, I would find that very, very boring. So I, I'll allow space. Let's just say I'm celebrating an anniversary of someone. I will build in enough structure that I know we have a couple of greatest hits. Right. So it's like I've done my homework. I've listened. I've taken some notes. Like okay, like this and this, or maybe I talk to her mom or her sister, whatever it might be. Like so, I, like that little bit of extra complexity, which is like you'll talk to their mother, talk to their friend whatever, then yeah. you know. And, and then you could tweak around that, like who you're talking to, what type of gift, you know, what type of place. Right. Uh, but that, but but again, you're using your advantage. Like you're kind of um, embracing an, a little bit of extra complexity, which maybe m- many people don't do, yeah. to, to solve an important problem. To solve an important problem because I don't, I don't think I'm as emotionally developed as many people which might allow me in a more freeform environment just to like pick up on all these cues and figure it out and create an incredible evening from scratch with just like the dinner established. But I, I recognize that like we're all like Swiss cheese, right? We we all have our holes and I've developed certain strengths and everyone's developed certain strengths. And by virtue of the focus needed to develop the strengths, you've by definition neglected other things. Like it's just it's well, just, well it's, it's funny you mentioned that um you don't I mean I don't know whether this is true or not. Maybe you're being self-deprecating. You say uh, you're not as emotionally developed. You said as as other people, but maybe as much as you, maybe what you really mean as much as you would like. But yeah. I just remember it was very funny when you were a, a guest host on mine and Stephen Dubner's podcast, Question of the Day. It, it, this was not, it doesn't have to do with emotionally developed. 
but you definitely <laughs> raised by a factor of five, like the vocabulary level of like our <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> so, you know, in vocabulary, they always say, you know, speak at like a fourth grade level. Yeah. You were at like grad school level. <laughs> yeah, which which is a bad, I think a bad habit. You don't do that with writing, but it was, yeah. just, it was just funny in the, po- in the context of the podcast because we're like, we just... You know, go I, I, I might have been I might have been swallowing some magic pills beforehand. Who knows what was peaking in my bloodstream at the time? <laughs> well, that's the other thing too. I I remember first seeing you give a talk. Part of your talk was like what smart drugs you took right before. Yeah, the, the, the talk that was in um, Jason Gaynor's Masterminds talks in oh, uh, yeah, 2013. Yeah, yeah. This is a while back. Yeah. yeah, so you're like sweating and you're talking about this smart. Oh, the <laughs> lights. They needed so, to tone down the lights. I think yeah. the uh, I remember that talk in Toronto, and yeah, the lights were so hot. Oh my God! Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I wasn't sweating from the smart drugs, but yes. So the so so my uh, my sort of inclination towards Princetonian pomp probably came out because I was mainlining God, God only knows what uh, during that chat. But yeah, the the emotional development piece. I mean, that's actually a good example, right? So if if I were taking a more blank slate read of the situation as opposed to meditating on how I can make a good impression or share something with people and maybe having some level of insecurity about being surrounded by two smart people in a new environment recording, if I had had the confidence empathically to let go of the reins a little bit, maybe I would have read that, right? Yeah, but uh, but, but it worked. It wasn't no, no, bad. It, it worked, but I, I've been in the last few years in particular trying to pay more attention. I have been paying more attention to certain things that are a bit harder to quantify and uh, less understood than some of the quantifiable scientific stuff that I like like to obsess over. And whether that is something as nebulous sounding as uh, intuition, it's like when I sit down or somebody I get introduced to somebody for the first time, I pay a lot of attention to how I feel now. Mm. You know, not just what do they say, not the content. It's like no, when you first meet them, like what does your body do? Right? And there is. Just to get into the science of it, there is scientific evidence that that's important. Oh, for sure. Because before, obviously, before language was developed, species survived based on gut instincts. Yeah, this whole language thing is, in the grand scheme, very, very new. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I've been paying a lot of attention to some of the uh, some of the tools, I suppose, and reflexes and so on that we've developed over millions of years prior to that. And it served me really well. So that that's also affected the content of the questions that I ask. So okay, so so um, we went off on a couple of tangents, uh, <laughs> which is fine because it, it, it's all interesting. So Vince Vaughn, so you're asking, what does the opportunity cost? Slash, what is the ask? What might this look like if it were easy? Which is a really fascinating question because I think people don't ask that. And they see so they kind of come up with a final goal, and they see so many obstacles in the way they they give up rather than saying there's small ways to tackle these obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, you ask what what are the worst things that can happen slash what what don't I control? Um, what's another question? You, you said there were four oh, questions, well, uh, or I mean four or so. I mean mm-hmm. uh, there there are probably more because I would then have follow up questions based on my journaling. This is always journaling. I don't just do this in my head, and uh, I would. Always, 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 and it's related to answers that would come out of some of these already, but ask, how can I cap the downside? Mm-hmm. So of these worst case scenarios, how can I how can I remove those entirely or decrease 
the cost. Right? It's like, okay, well, there's probably some minimal financial hurdle just so that I know they're in it, right? that they're committed to this, uh, not unlike, say, in advance in books in some respects. Then there would be distribution. All right, So I need certain contractual rights that allow me to defend against the distinct possibility that shit could go sideways, there's a regime change, who knows? And then all of a sudden, sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. that, that thing we said we were going to do, we can't do anymore. And uh, then the batching, whenever possible. So rather than having meetings and calls spread out every week for months and months on end, it's like, no, we're going to have this period of time. We're getting everything done in this period that's contractually defined, like date X to Y. And then we're going to we're going to record everything in a two-week period. It's going to be a very intense two-week period, so we need to make sure everything is running smoothly. And that's what we did, and it worked out great from a, from a quality perspective. Uh, but then there were, as there are very often, uh, change in distribution strategy, so it was no longer then going to be available on iTunes, but instead only available on DirecTV. Well, this causes a wrinkle in the plans, certainly, for reaching my audience. Because if they don't already have DirecTV, to ask them to spend $75 a month or whatever it is solely to watch my show is a very, very, un- uh, I'm not going to say unreasonable, but it's a large ask. Uh, so, of course, that's going to handicap the distribution. And I'm very proud of these conversations. Uh, so the 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 podcast excerpts then became doubly important for sharing some of what uh, these these various guests like David Blaine and and Stuart Copeland and others had very very graciously given on stage. So that's how I look at a lot of these, and I also, whenever possible, like to give myself an out, uh, and that doesn't then that very very distinctly does not mean breaking a contractual obligation but it means setting expectations up front this is something i've done the last few years that has really mm. i think produced better results with far less stress and strain which is i think i need to learn this one yeah which is whenever i'm going to commit to a big project if a lot of the responsibility falls on me for production which is in this case a very good thing uh, i will say from the very outset, I am going to, I would like to try this. So let's say Tribe of Mentors, right? Great example. I'm reaching out to 130, 150 people, I've, most of whom I, I've had zero contact with, to ask them a bunch of really deep questions that take time to answer. They may not answer. I just don't know. But we need to decide whether we're doing a book or not before I go out and ask them because if they answer, then I want the ability to put it into a book. Right? So there's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. But what I told the publishers, I said, this is what I want to try. And I'm going to run through all these questions right, in my own head and via journaling that we just talked about. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to spend any of the advance until I know it's working. If it doesn't work, I just want you guys to know that there's the, there's the distinct possibility I will give you your money back and just wipe the slate clean. No deal. That's, and, so, that's so smart because, I mean... Again, I mean, this. It, it, luckily, it turned into a great book, and we're gonna we're gonna dive yeah. into it. And uh, you know, tribe of mentors. There's so just like tools of the titans. There's so much great life advice that I'm sure you've learned from and benefited from. But I mean, I think I tend to dive into something thinking just like you have that. You know, you figure you're going to quote unquote win because you have this uh, ability to do things highly complex and you have a high degree of pain. I always figure. 
my winning strategy is to over deliver and then over promise. I mean, so, sorry, over promise and then over deliver. Because yeah. I know everybody else is trying to under under promise and over deliver. So if I simply over promise and over deliver, <laughs> I'm going to be the, the 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 average advice that everyone has grown up with. Yeah. So, but I don't think of these things like how can I give myself an out. Instead, suddenly now, oh, I over promised. Everyone agreed. Now I've got to do what I do next, which is over deliver. And it's just like with your first TV show, uh, it takes a chunk out of your soul for a little while. Yeah, it takes a toll. And I, I, I've realized more and more so, just turned 40 this year, which, which wasn't a real thing to me. I mean, there were, there were surrounding events that made it a very intense 12 months, which we could talk about, certainly. Yeah, I want to know, I want, I want to know one of those events right now. There were surrounding events that made it a very intense twelve months, which we could talk about certainly. Yeah, I want to know. I want, I want to know one of those events right now. Uh well, I had a number of close friends die unexpectedly, oh, sorry, in, yeah. including one of the um, mentors in this book just a few weeks ago, uh, very unexpectedly. But uh, the where was I going with that? Uh, sorry. I, no, 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 no. It's okay. It's just it pulls up a lot of memories, which we could, which we can talk about, but. The the turning forty. This is where I was going. Turning forty to me was symbolically important, but it didn't cause me to like run out and uh, you know buy a Corvette or something. It it was symbolically important and an opportunity to reassess a lot of things in my life, in the world in general, and how I relate to people in the world. Uh, because looking at say actuarial tables like all right well this let's let's assume that this is 50% of the journey right so now I'm past the halfway mark and those those tolls that I've paid by being hyper aggressive and competitive in everything more or less without any distinction uh, embracing a high pain tolerance and complexity as a default uh I don't necessarily think that those those taxes you pay automatically all regenerate. I think that they can have a, a, an ongoing cost, and that uh, you know you, you can only be you can only lash yourself so many times before you start to develop scar tissue. And also, as you age, not that forty is an old yeah. age, but the, the the pain tolerance you had before that might have had certain goals that you um uh you know you needed or or valued that 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 pain tolerance is going to have a different effect on you you might not value those goals the same way you might value time more yeah and and pain to some extent takes away from time because it's, now you have to spend time recovering from pain yeah totally so so thinking about uh testing the assumptions of what had gotten me to 40. Like, all right, well, let's let's really look at the playbook. Let's look at the beliefs that you have and try to put them under a microscope to examine how much they've served you. So to what extent you've succeeded because of them and to what extent you've done what you did despite these various beliefs. Right? Because it's, it's uh, very often that humans assume I did X well because I believe Y. Whereas in fact, it would have been 10 times easier and 10 times faster 
uh, if they hadn't had that belief and they succeeded despite it. If that makes if that makes any sense. No. So all right. So I'll give you an example. <laughs> so I might say uh, I've succeeded because I have a high pain tolerance, and I say that like a statement of fact without really examining under a microscope, replaying the tape and looking at my experiences, how much I enjoyed them, how objectively successful they were. So I say, you know what? No, because I have this really high pain tolerance, that's been one of the keys to my success. You hear this kind of stuff all the time. And in fact, if you were going to go back, kind of like a Christmas story with Bill Murray, if you're going to go back and observe the other people in my life watching it who had a very good perspective, they would say, no, he actually just inflicted a lot of unnecessary pain on himself and, well, uh, and, and, and created a lot of, say, uh, abrasive relationships with people because he was constantly running on, on empty and redlining and that caused a lot of problems. So in fact, if he hadn't been that way, this project would have succeeded in half the time. He would have maintained really good relationships with all these other people. But the story that Tim tells himself, because he's told himself for so long, is he succeeds because he can take more pain. And that might have been true, say, in wrestling, where it did serve some type of purpose. But he's, he's created this dogmatic, almost religious belief in that story that he's now applying to other things and it's just not true. So he's, he's somehow managed to hold his life together despite that, but it's not the fucking key to his success. It's, absolutely, it's, a, it's an anchor that he's dragging behind himself. Well, it's interesting because you take like Tribe of Mentors which, and, and Tools of the Titans, which may be, uh, in, in my opinion, your most impactful books, and particularly with Tribe of Mentors, you you specifically uh, in terms of the process of doing this book, you've reduced the degree of pain to such a ridiculous level yeah. that it's amazing you create a work of such quality without any pain at all. Yeah, it's 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 really been weird for me to relate to lack of pain differently. <laughs> but let but let but let's look yeah. at it like so. I like looking at these things in hindsight. You could say, well, I succeeded because of X, Y, and Z, like you said. Yeah. But um, let's look at the, the four-hour work week, which was sort of a uh, obviously a pivot point for for you, for your financial success, for your brand. Um, it seems to me, looking totally from the outside, because I didn't know you then, that uh, there was a couple of pain points. One is you you were going, you know, to the wall and beyond with your business that you were running then. And because you felt like you had to, you had a uh, uh, tolerance for pain, so you could wipe out competition that way. And then, and then it was probably painful for you to take a step back and realize, oh, if I cut out, you know, 80% of my stuff and, or whatever the ratio is, I could do this four hour work week and still make almost as 80% of the profits. Yep. So that must've been painful. Um, eliminating that part of the, the business. Then for your book itself, you're, I don't want to say you're an introvert. I don't really know enough. No, I to, am. To, that's, that's fair. But, but you did the opposite of introversion, which is you were, you went to every blogging conference, you networked the hell out of the whole thing and you built up an audience, an audience from this because you knew tactically that as you built this audience, these are the reviewer, the initial reviewers of your book and would help your success. And so there's probably that you had lots of strategies like that that involved pain for you that would help that book. So am I am I wrong on on I mean was there an easier way to do that and have that success for that book? I I think there there could have been uh certainly uh 
and the fact of the matter is, I mean, I haven't, in, I did not enjoy writing any of my books prior to Tools of Titans. And Tools of Titans, I again, I'll say it again, your best, and then and then this one I view as sort of kind of a, a continuation of it. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, they're they're very much, uh, yeah, very complimentary. Uh, I think that. Um, there's certainly easier ways I could have gone about it. I mean, for instance, one thing that I've realized for myself, and part of the reason that I enjoyed putting together Travel Mentors, there are many reasons, but one, for instance, one discovery was that up until a few years ago, I viewed writing as necessarily an, a, a very isolating process. And I would go somewhere by myself, sit in like a dark coffee shop or apartment and work on a book. Inevitably, this put me into, I, I would end up on the edges of depression or get very close. It, some combination of anxiety and depression. And in the last few years, I realized even if there's no functional requirement to have someone with me, I will pay, say, a researcher who's helping me with certain aspects of a book. I will fly them to wherever I am and put them up for weeks or months at a time so that I am within, say, 10 to 15 feet of them for the majority of the day. To have another human nearby. I mean, how reptilian is that? No, that, but that's very interesting. It's been huge. I mean, that there is absolutely no technical reason why we couldn't do that remotely. But from a psychological, emotional standpoint, just having someone there who I can have lunch with, who we can take, who I can bike with together to go grab some iced tea, whatever it might be, those little breaks, those little social interactions are a have been a complete game changer for me within the context of writing. And and, and I think it's it's important for that person to to challenge you in some ways too. So that sure. the 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 com that the output from the conversations could end up in the book. Oh yeah, totally. Which which is absolutely true in this book. I mean a bunch of the features in this book came directly from feedback from this researcher because he's so deep in the process with me, but has a slightly more distanced perspective because he's not going word for word for word <laughs> like I am. And that would be one example. Another would be routinizing as much as possible related to non-creative components of the day. What I mean by that is when you get up, you shouldn't have to think about which of 17 options you're going to have for breakfast. That's a real waste of limited cognitive capacity. Right? You're burning fuel that should be only used for your unique strengths. And or, people don't realize that cognitive capacity is limited per day. Hence the need yep. for sleep. Hence the need for food to rejuvenate. Yep. Uh, and hence the concept of willpower depletion at the end of a day. Totally. So, 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 understanding that and managing that as uh, kind of almost neurotic as that sounds is extremely important. It's ex freedom can be found in more constraints, which I mean, it sounds funny, but in my life, that's certainly been the case. And uh, for instance, right now, you know, running around New York City, I find New York City typically very overwhelming for a lot of reasons and my so i'm 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 templatizing as much as possible i have exactly the same lunch every day right? it is and, and i remember last time i won't i won't name any of the places or anything but uh you stay at the same hotel yeah. you even store clothes there so you don't have to think yeah. about like packing stay, stay in the same room 
Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, same room. And right, I have a trunk there with all of the clothing that I'll need for a trip so I don't have to pack at all, uh, which is still the case. And uh, I'll typically have a few cans of beans, like a, a jar of coconut oil, a few things that don't expire, maybe some sardines, so that when I land, at least for the first day, I don't even have to think about food. It's it's all set it and forget it. And uh, with the book writing, I, I've realized a few a few other things. For instance, and a lot of these you'll notice, like the the human contact. Uh, or having someone in it with you. It's not just human contact because you can go to a coffee shop and simulate that, but it's not the same. Uh, in addition to that, just biochemically paying attention to certain things uh, like uh, excessive coffee consumption. So I'm a, I'm a rapid caffeine metabolizer, but specifically, and I, and I have not figured out exactly why this is because I've, I've tested it, surprise, surprise, um, by comparing, say, consuming 100 milligram or 200 milligrams of caffeine anhydrous in the form of capsules with the equivalent amount of caffeine in coffee. And the capsules, especially if, if it's combined with something like L-theanine, lasts a long time. If I drink a cup of coffee, I'll be on fire for 20 minutes and then I get very, very tired. And then that exhaustion causes me to get anxious or panicky, right? Because mm. if I'm writing a book, uh-oh, no, I can't afford to be tired right now. It's only 11 a.m. So then I drink another cup and then I drink another cup. And for the first two books, I was fueled by stimulants. I mean, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 20 times a day. It was not a good, not a good cycle to get caught in. So for, uh, for Tools of Titans and then especially for Tribe of Mentors, I very deliberately limited myself to different types of green tea, black tea, maybe some what are called exogenous ketones, which we could get into if you want, but a handful of other compounds and beverages that I knew would allow me to sustain a high level of output, but without taking me to like 10,000 RPMs. And that in and of itself, I realized was preventing the tipping of a very negative lead domino that then affected everything else, right? Because if I'm, if I'm consuming 12 cups of coffee a day, which is not an exaggeration, what else is that going to affect? It's going to affect my tension because I'll be overstimulated or agitated. It's going to affect my sleep. Then what happens? Uh-oh, I only got five hours of sleep. Which, by the way, in Tribe of Mentors is repeated over and over yes, again, how sleep, impor the importance of sleep. Yeah, it's like 120 out of 140 people talk about sleep. They talk about, I mean, there are all sorts of cool patterns, like the transcendental meditation of Vipassana comes up a lot, both of those. And certain books, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, Poor Charlie's Almanac, a lot of books. Man's Search for Meaning is all over this. Yeah, it's everywhere. And uh, so you do spot certain patterns. So for me, uh, the process, the, the craft, like the art has become for me as much how I write the book as how the book turns out. Yeah, I think, I think um, look, process is art, which is why I'm, I'm kind of getting into this before we get into the actual Oh man, art we, we could talk about process for an, another hour. I don't care. I but love what's it. impressed me though the most about your latest projects, like let's say Tribe of Mentors and the, the TV show that you've done since Tools of the Titans is how you're really following this advice of kind of hacking, you know, making it the four-hour TV show <laughs> or the four-hour bestseller, like really trying to figure out the 80-20 rule of how to get these amazing works done 
um, by, by really focusing on and trying to figure out what's the important part, what are the things that stress me the most about prior situations and how to eliminate that but still create the work. Yeah, yeah. It's And one of the big revelations for me and it's it, it's it's probably going to seem silly to a lot of people are like yeah Ferris duh <laughs> obviously but easier does not necessarily mean lazier and easier meaning the path of less resistance does not necessarily mean lower quality output and in fact sometimes it is the path to better output better results and for instance you're chatting with uh, Seth Godin, who I just have an incredible amount of respect for, and so so wise, even beyond what he writes about, just has created such a fantastic life yeah. for himself. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this a little bit, but I'll paraphrase. I remember he was he was talking to a friend of his, uh, a woman who was an aspiring entrepreneur, and she was trying to invent, I want to say, toys of some type and license them to toy companies. And uh, she was pushing this rock uphill, pushing this rock uphill constant rejection and Seth at some point and I apologize Seth for for not getting this quite to a T with the details but he said instead of pushing a rock uphill why don't you try a business where you're pushing a rock downhill he said the the people at these toy companies are not equipped they're not trained they're not prepared to like you or work with you or license from you and he helped her to think about a path of less resistance, and she created a deck of cards of some type, a very unique deck of cards. And I want to say sold millions of packs of these cards. And it was one one-hundredth of the pain and effort involved in trying to take the harder route. Uh, and that's the reason that the word I keep coming back to in my own head is elegance. And it's like, elegance, what is elegance? Like Elegance you can see in certain facets of, say, Japanese or uh, Scandinavian design. You're like, wow, okay, they made a chair out of two pieces of wood that are perfectly joined together without any type of fastening. Like, that's a beautifully minimalist solution. But it's not too little, it's not Spartan. It's just the least that they needed to include to get the absolute most beautiful and functional output. So, so I feel like that's kind of almost an extension of the four hour idea. So it so is like, so like yeah. the four hour chef, which is by the way, I don't know how you put that book together. That was like an incredibly complicated. It's so book. complicated. I mean, it did encapsulate the four hour <laughs> idea very well, which is that you can kind of find ways to be or appear as professional and expert as possible in as little uh, a, a time as possible. And yet that book itself was like, must have taken you a, a gazillion man years to to put together. Yeah, that that book that's that's a whole story in and of itself, which led to complete burnout. By the way, I was completely burned out after that book. It was like seven books in one. I don't yeah. know what I was. That was it was a, that was another suicide mission that I signed up for. But it was a great book. I, I yeah, won't very, take away from very it, proud of it. But yeah, I didn't need to impose as much lashing on myself as I did. But I think now, in process, in the in your process. And I see this with your podcast. I see this with the TV show. I see this with this book. Uh, you're really, you're really uh, living, living what you preach. Like you're, you're, you're really figuring out with everything you do how to go through this process of, of, you know, finding the exact right components. Asking yourself, what's the downside? What's the ask? Uh, and very important, what this might look like if it were easy. 
Yeah, and I'll add one more because you are really have been uh, inspiring to me and I think millions of other people in this respect. Another piece of it, which is just, it's a, it's a hidden gem and in some ways a key just sitting right there in front of us for most of our lives is what, what weirdness or I'm insulted now. No, no, no. This is going somewhere good. Let me finish. Like what weirdness or weakness that I've hidden or made an attempt to hide could I actually really dive headfirst into and explore and embrace and possibly share? I think that is a superpower. And you're really good at this. Uh, and for better or for worse. For better or for worse. I mean, or or both. For better yes. and for worse. <laughs> yes, you have to have the weakness first <laughs> yeah, right. before you can explore. It. Right, and you know, really embracing your your authentically weird self, uh, because you know, normal people are just folks you don't know well enough yet. Right, <laughs> there's nobody's normal. We're so full of stuff and trauma and nonsense and silly beliefs. It's like everybody's full of that stuff. So. Uh, is there a way then to somehow turn what what you might have seen as a bug into a feature? And when you start to do that, in addition to these other questions, then you create something that is so much your own that you're not competing. You don't feel like you're competing with anyone. That's That's so interesting to view it as opposed to saying, what am I unique at by saying, what am I weakest at or most vulnerable at and embracing it and owning it that yeah. does kind of bring out uniqueness and also it brings out relatability because yeah. everybody is weak at something and they want to know that they can connect with you on that level. Totally. So totally. And yeah. I and I think that if you were to ask yourself or when if I were to ask many people what makes you unique, they might have too much humility or insecurity or anxiety to explore that question honestly within themselves. But if I'm like, okay, look, let's not talk about your superpowers. Like, what are you terrible at? What are you afraid of? Right? What terrifies you? If if your parents were asked or your siblings were asked to talk about some of the weirdest stuff that you did repeatedly as a kid, what would those be? And you can get then to the same place. Well, just, let me ask you, like, what what right now are you terrible at? Uh, I okay, all right. Yeah, I I I'm getting better. So I'm trending in the right direction. I think that. I am uh, a work in progress with loving myself. I've never really had a fond opinion of myself. I've been very brutal and unforgiving. Have and you valued that brutality in the sense that, oh, it's, I'm so bad at this, so I need to improve, so I'm going to no, boom, boom, boom? No, no, no. I mean, for the vast majority of my life, and by vast majority, I mean like 235, age 35 and beyond, I viewed my emotional weaknesses and past trauma as something to be compartmentalized and locked away so that I could refine myself as an instrument for trying to help other people. I've never had any, that's a strong statement. I've never, uh, never is strong. Let me rephrase. I'm trying to get better at this because like the words you use are really important. I've very, very rarely felt any joy or pride about any of my accomplishments. And uh, I did a, meditation retreat recently, which was very, very, very difficult uh, for a host of reasons. But at one point they were talking about something they called mudita, which I think is one of the virtues of Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist scholar by any stretch, but mudita is 
the ability to get joy out of others' accomplishments or to feel joy because of other people's joy. Right? So it's, it's, you can think of it as the opposite of jealousy and envy. And I kind of laughed because of all of the virtues they mentioned, that's the only one that comes naturally to me because I don't get or historically have not gotten any joy out of my own life or my own achievements. It's always been getting it from other people or trying to help my readers or listeners and getting joy from what they're able to do. Uh, but I've, I've been really, really uh, brutal to myself for my entire life, basically. So I, I would say that right now, uh, to quote Sharon Salzberg, a very famous meditation teacher who's in Tribe of Mentors, um, put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others. And I've, I've, I've come to realize that you can do a lot in this world uh, from the standpoint of achievement and creating things with, while just tolerating yourself. But if you really want to go a few layers deeper and help people with really profound trauma and emotional terrain, you have to go through that yourself. And so even if I don't care about myself, right? Which is weird to say, but like this this has been my internal monologue for decades. Right? Like even if I don't care about myself, if I optimally want to help other people, I have to like go through my own kind of valley of death on this stuff. And how do you how do you um how do you choose to go through that valley of death? Cuz often we don't know what it is. I mean, I'm not convinced I know exactly what it is. I would say that it it for me, I can't speak for other people, but uh there are there are I'll mention a few things that have helped me, and this is particularly in the last twelve months, but it's it's been brewing for about three years, I would say. Uh, would be number one. Uh, there's a great book, so I'm shooting myself in the foot here. But if you're going to get one book, this is the one you should get, and uh, then you can get my book later <laughs> at some point. Uh, I would say Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. Oh yeah, great book. Is a real well, that was a real game changer for me in a lot of respects, especially especially as it relates to how I contend with my own anger, mostly self-directed. And that would be one. Uh, the second would be daily meditation in the morning before turning my phone off of airplane. My phone's almost always on airplane mode so that I'm less reactive. I'm dodging fewer bullets. And so whether it's an app like Headspace, which I think is actually very well designed for say 10 minutes a day for 10 days straight, is a fantastic place to start. If you want to help to train yourself, and I do think training is the way to look at it. It's like going to the gym to be less emotionally reactive so that instead of always being inside the washing machine with your own thoughts, just getting tumbled with all this dirty clothing, you can step out even just six inches and kind of look through the glass and say, oh, interesting. So, um, know, I find, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I mean, I've been to, uh, I've explored meditation quite a bit. I've been to many meditation retreats. I've taught meditation on occasion, but I'm, and you're right, meditation is kind of like that practice. It's, it's, it's called a practice because it really is practice so that when you're in the laundromat or laundry room and you're thinking of something that you, your mind starts going down, oh, I'm angry about this, 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 you are able to recognize it and pull yourself out of that rabbit hole and be 
calmer. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the whole Vipassana thing of of body sensing, you know, right. while, while you're meditating. But and this is this is really not for this conversation, but I've really been intrigued lately by the differences between meditation and prayer as regards loving yourself. Okay, so the, I'm glad you brought this up because within the I wish there were a better word than meditation, and I know we could call it mindfulness practice, but I feel like it needs a rebrand. In any case, if we're talking, I agree with that. yeah, if we're talking about non-reactivity training or present state awareness training, uh, there are forms of meditation that are. I have an allergy to religion or organized religion of most types, so prayer is a word that just evokes a, which uh, also needs rebranding. It does. It just it, it doesn't have to be associated with religion. I, I, absolutely, but the word it it. it it ev- it evokes a lot of resistance in me. Right. However, if you were to look at it, and the first person to teach me this actually um, it had a huge impact. So thank you, Meng. Uh, Chade Meng Tan uh, has talked about. He was the first person to introduce me to Meta M E T T A or loving kindness meditation. Uh, Jack Cornfield is very well known for this as well, and and the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama and many others. Right, Sharon. Sharon Salzberg and, and and others have talked about this, and try not to dismiss it based on the name because I know that there are many Type A personalities, including myself, for a very long time. We're like loving kindness meditation. Gotcha. Like <laughs> when I drink the Kool Aid, then we can talk about all this woo woo stuff. But really, what it does is it helps you to be to experience more joy by wishing other people joy. It's actually a very clever workaround. So, and it's so, it can be so, so simple. Uh, and I'd suggest if people just look up loving kindness meditation, ch- uh, uh, Chade, C-H-A-D-E, men, M-E-N-G, last name T-A-N, I think it's hyphenated. Uh, I'm sure you'll find a description online and it was in Tools of Titans as well. Uh, that I think is a blend of sort of well-wishing in prayer and meditative practice. I, I agree with that. Which I find, I've, I've, I've found very valuable. So sometimes if I'm feeling very overwhelmed or scattered, uh, the first thing that I'll do when I sit down is not my usual transcendental meditation. I'll do, say, five minutes of loving kindness. I'm, if I'm feeling really brutal or acting very brutally in my internal monologue towards myself, I'll say, all right, well, I can't love myself right now. So let me take five minutes and just project towards other people. And the recognition that you can't love yourself, that comes from the mindfulness meditation. Right. So so there there are uses for these things, but they're different. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so 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 to to provide a few other examples. So we talked about uh the meditation and the radical uh, acceptance. Radical acceptance. Uh, there, there are a few others that I that I'd suggest. Uh, so one is if you have a lot of childhood trauma or any severe trauma period, uh, I've become very interested in the somatic aspects of that. So there's, uh, for instance, a book called I think it's The Body Keeps the Score. There's also someone named Peter Levine who's written quite a bit about this as it relates to how the body potentially stores trauma. And uh, the the part of physiology and movement and so on related to both keeping trauma and releasing trauma, I, I think is very important subject matter that I'm only really delving into right now. This is not something I would recommend kids try at home without extremely extremely qualified supervision. So you could tr- you, you could treat this like finding a neurosurgeon, but I, I continued regular 
supervised use of psychedelics has been very critical to uh, some of the micro insights. Micro doses or full doses? Both. Hmm. And uh, unfortunately, in the United States at least, we have a, a politicized system of classifying compounds as opposed to a scientifically minded approach in some cases. Uh, so yeah, because if you think about it, you know, there's so much evidence. I mean, without getting too much onto this tangent, the FDA goes through all these trials on drugs that eventually kill people in many cases and they have to do all these recalls. Meanwhile, some of these drugs have been, have been well-known drugs have been around for decades, have no toxic levels, have would, would pass easily stage four of any FDA trial, and yet we have stigmatized them and for various reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite silly. Uh, so, so many of these compounds have been in regular use for hundreds, but most likely thousands of years by various indigenous groups uh, in all of the Americas, certainly, and around the world. So, so that is part of the reason why roughly two years ago when I stopped all of my startup investing, a lot of that energy and those funds have been redirected to scientific studies at places like Johns Hopkins and elsewhere, looking at, for instance, uh, psilocybin uh, or MDMA and so on for use with PTSD and so on. That'd be that'd be another, uh, and then I would say, uh, last but not least, is uh, it's going to sound weird, maybe, and I'm not sure how this started exactly. I think it's probably a combination of everything I just mentioned, but looking at people as you go about your day, who would normally make you upset, right? And if they're behaving in some way that's really just unforgivable for you, maybe they're yelling at their kid or they're like berating a barista or something, trying to make them coffee, whatever it is. Somebody who cuts you off in traffic and is like freaking out, obviously, in their car. And what, what I've started doing is just asking myself, like, what happened to this person? You know, it's like, it's not accidental that they behave this way. Like there were sort of cause and effect collection machines. So like, what happened to this person? And realizing that- I like how you say we're cause and effect collection machines. Do <laughs> you know what I mean though? It's like, yes. it, and I mean, not to get really out there and talk about whether we have free will or not, that's more of a Sam Harris conversation. <laughs> but suffice to say, like everything we've done and experienced has led us to where we are right now. And it's easy to just say, oh wow, that guy's such a stupid dick. Like I wish someone would knock that guy's teeth in. Which- Granted, you, you you still might conclude, right. but along with that, just ask, just wondering to yourself, like, I wonder what happened to this guy or this woman to lead them to behave this way. Like, for all you know, and I mean, this is actually a real example. I'm not going to name names, but it's like I, I there was this woman who had some very peculiar emotional responses to a number of things, and it turned out that you know she had watched her father beat her mother into unconsciousness on multiple occasions, like knocked out unconscious on the floor in the kitchen as a little kid. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, in that case, like I'm surprised she's functional at all. Like she's she's remarkably well adjusted and has done a really good job, all things considered. And it gives you a layer of compassion that you might not have otherwise. And I'm not using compassion in a kumbaya, we can all achieve world peace if we just have a little bit of compassion sense. I do think that unfortunately we are chimps in better clothing with lots of weapons and humans like to fight. Like at the end of the day, 
I don't think conflict is going out of business anytime soon. At the same time, if you want to just improve your experience of positive emotional states in the world and you want to share that with the people you care about most, this is a really, really important tool in the toolkit, I think. And to have the ability to kind of wedge this, this crowbar of compassion into situations that would otherwise cause you to be really reactive. I, I read this quote recently <laughs> by uh, Ram Das. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before. Sure. Interesting character. And his quote was... Ex-Harvard professor. That's right. LSD. Oh, yeah. And all sorts of, of fascinating circumstances surrounding uh, Ram Das, who previously had a different name prior to that. But... Uh, his quote was, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. <laughs> and I thought that was just such a great quote because I've seen so many people who seem to have everything so figured out and so polished and then you go to have a dinner at their house with them and their parents and you just see them on the verge of losing their shit. Because we all, we all, yeah. we all carry with us in a pretty heavy way that 14-year-old self. Oh, sure. And if you're with your parents, you're back to, it's easier uh, to connect to that 14-year-old oh, totally, self. Totally, So even in a situation or especially in a situation like that. So we could take the practicing that is uh, fairly lightweight with say a stranger in Starbucks who's losing his shit. That is just like sitting on your couch meditating for 10 minutes is training for when you walk out into the mess of reality of the rest of your day. Looking at someone in Starbucks and practicing the compassion is practice for when you sit down at dinner and you look at your one of your parents or one of your siblings and you your initial reaction is why the fuck do they always do x and then you take a second you're like wait a minute like maybe i don't even know the full story of what my brother or sister went through i certainly don't have a full picture right and i think back to maybe some of the things that happened to me that they have no idea happened to me and so on and so forth uh it's important Really important. So, so l let me ask you this, and 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 then I promise we're. we're <laughs> I actually have so many questions about tribe mentors. That's the the whole purpose here. But you know, the the, the great Lucille Ball has said, uh, you have to love yourself before you can do great things. Mm -hmm. And um, and of course, she went on to do many great things. But I kind of think also, action precedes thoughts. So you have to do great things to love yourself also. So I'm, I'm unclear where I stand on the quote, but I see both sides of it. What, what's, what's your take? You've done great things, um, but yeah. you know, maybe, I don't know, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that quote? Uh, I, I don't think you have to love yourself to do great things, but uh, I'm also... Do you, do you feel the opposite? Like, do you, if you is it easier to love yourself if you're doing great things and and great could be defined in a number of ways but let's say you're doing great things for other people i think there are certain species of great things that are far easier to do if you love yourself for sure mm -hmm. uh, anything that includes or requires a level of empathy or compassion or walking a mile in someone else's shoes uh, i i i really believe that it's a it's a if not a prerequisite a, a a massive advantage. What 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 I'm asking though is, do you have, should you walk a mile in someone's shoes in order to love yourself? Should you actually act as yeah. if you have empathy to get empathy? Well, potentially, potentially. I mean, for me, 
it, it, I, it was a non-starter until I started to look at really old stuff and handle unfinished business. It, it was just it was just a non-starter like that. I could have done that. Like I'm very good at role playing and playing the part. I mean, I've done it in hundreds of different areas where I spend time with an expert and then I try to mimic that expert. Like I can do it, but at the end of the day for me i realized there was just a lot of unfinished business in my own psyche that i could put window dressing around uh but i i i couldn't think my way out of some of the things that i experienced i mean there there was just a deeper level to it and that that may be a very dissatisfying answer for a lot of people listening but at the end of the day i think that uh, there's also a question and this is going to get really out there as to how important the great things really are, right? Like, who knows? For all we know, right? We're all just, we're if, all gone in two generations. Yeah, we're all Nobody gone in two generations, us. or we're in a simulation to begin with, uh, per <laughs> Elon Musk and some of his his theories. So, th- what I would say we at least experience is the the inner landscape of our minds and feelings. So one could argue that the great things for the multitudes and so on have importance, but one could also argue that the realist reality that we have to hold on to is our internal experience and that loving oneself is of at least equal importance, if not greater importance, than any of those other great deeds you might perform. Who's to say? Let's. We're gonna dive into tribe of mentors, because, and the reason is is because each one of the mentors mentioned here, we can do like an entire podcast about each chapter. Oh, easily. So as yeah. you can see, I have notes throughout each thing that interests me. I'm just gonna take random stuff and see what interests me. You talk uh, throughout this book about absurdism and kind of you know like here's this quote from um, Einstein that you like, that you're po- quotes on pondering, Tim Ferriss from January, 2017. If at first the idea is not absurd, then there is no hope for it. Um, and then you have <laughs> May West, those who are easily shocked should be shocked more often. Um, uh, and then here's from Annie Dillard, a schedule depends from chaos and whim. Uh, it is a net for catching days. Uh, uh, that quote I don't understand as much. But what's, I can explain that one. Okay, tell me. So that relates to me eating the same lunch every day. So the, the structure defending from chaos and whim is the, the, the structure of the day, say with a set time and type of lunch, that provides a, a, a lattice work around which you build the rest of the day. Without that, it just slips through your fingers like sand. So that's why it's a net for catching days. Well, and it's interesting because... Um, you also want, but but then, but but also, you want to be easily, you know, you want to be shocking, and you want to have some absurdism in the day, something that's out of the ordinary. Yep. So, if you can structure as much of the day as possible, it actually leaves room for more opportunity to be absurd or to do something. Oh, it totally shocking. does. Because then your 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 cognitive capacity can be focused on that deviation from the routine as opposed to wondering or worrying about what time and when uh, and where you're going to have dinner and with whom, right? That's already figured out. So then you can be fully present with some potentially extremely absurd thing, which is something that a lot of, we were chatting about this a little bit, but you know, stand-up comics really have to train themselves to see like a good artist. 
Yeah. Um, and I remember Ed Catmull, you know, president of Pixar, mentioned this to me because he went from, I want to say physics, or no, he went from art into physics. And he said, some people think that's a really odd transition, but it's not because at the end of the day, both groups are trying to do exactly the same thing. They're trying to learn how to see. And what having a, a structure in your day allows you to do is to be less distracted in those other moments so that you can see something and you're like, oh, weird. I never noticed that like, whatever, I'm making this up. But let's, no, like, no, no, let's but say that, you're in LA and you're like, I've never noticed that for some reason, like the homeless Armenian people tend to do this particular thing, like in front of such and such businesses. Like, hmm, I never noticed that. And I've walked past here a thousand times before. Okay, like mental note. And you collect these things that you observe, right? So, so yeah, the... Uh, uh, yeah, those are reminders for me. So these quotes that I'm pondering or the poll quotes that I put at the beginning of all these chapters. So the, there's one might ask, well, how did you choose those? And these are things that I want to remind myself of because all of my books that I put together that are including the expertise of other people are the books that I couldn't find for myself. Right? Well, and it's funny, they're, they're, it's hard to remember all of this advice. Yeah. <laughs> so like Tools of the Titans has like maybe, you know, 10,000 different, individual components of advice you can't live your life thinking oh this person didn't say this so i can't you know you can't remember all these no no pieces of advice so the poll quote people could read these books in various ways they could focus on the quotes they could focus on the the bold they could they could dive where they're interested but like on the very next page you have this great poll quote uh that which i love the key to a great life is simply having a bunch of great days so so you can think about it one day at a time it does, which which is different from live every day as if it's your last because that's sort of a meaningless quote. Yeah. This this is sort of like okay, if I want my life to be great, whether it's the last or or far from the last, let's make sure today is great. Yeah. You yeah. can't you can't you can't you can't mortgage your today for a future great day. Right, which is a great way to put it. And you'll notice that in terms of sequencing. So like I've thought a lot about the sequencing. So right, we have this quote which I was pondering during that exact week and on stuck the absurdism with me, and on the absurdism and also on the net that catches days. Mm -hmm. And then the very next reminder that I have my, for myself is the great life being constructed from great days and the importance of, of thinking about this daily structure. And then you might have also that other Mae West quote that you mentioned, which I love, which is the uh, those who are shocked easily should be shocked more often, which is not actually an admonishment or something that I would necessarily wield against other people. It's a reminder for myself that the things that bother me out of proportion are probably the things that I need to be more regularly exposed to so that I have a higher tolerance of them. Like what? Uh, well, for instance, if, if I have a very strong knee-jerk reaction to uh, religion or terms that I view as religious, which I do, or uh, historically certainly have for many different reasons. Uh, perhaps if I bump into someone like Lord Rabbi Sachs, who's, who's in Tribe of Mentors, who just beyond every expectation, and I already expected him to be very smart, but just impresses me on every conceivable level, okay, like, I want to engage more with him because I feel like it will temper my real or imaginary past experience with all religion with a figure who I have a tremendous amount of respect for who can really teach me and the world a lot of value. Okay, so if I'm easily offended by X, 
there is certainly the potential that I should just avoid it. But life isn't uh, entirely under our control. So I would prefer to train myself to be less easily offended because that's the, that's the piece of the puzzle that I have some input over. I feel like one of the big, like comically tragic trends right now in the US is that so many people, and I mean, we could call them social justice warriors, we can call them whatever, are trying to train the entire world, world to be less offensive rather than training themselves to be more resilient and less easily offended so that they can just do what's under their control. And it's, it's a completely losing battle. Like you're, you don't have control over how everyone else responds. <laughs> no, and in fact, it creates all these heated, hateful arguments. Oh, uh, it's terrible. Uh, yeah. But, but you know, it's funny about the phrase SJW, social yeah. justice warriors. Yeah. I kept thinking, why are people talking about dating applications in these things? Because I thought they were referring to single Jewish women. And so I finally asked them, what's an SJW? And they said, oh, it's a social justice warrior. So I got it now. That's why I'm able to understand what you meant when you said oh, that. That is amazing. All right. I may I may end up borrowing that somehow. That's really good. So you got you got David Lynch in here, and yeah. he has by the way, nonstop. Uh, I'm sure you've read his his uh, book about catching meditation. The, catching so, the big fish. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it was yeah, called. Yeah. It's just amazing. And um, uh, you know, he, uh, there's a lot of quotes that he has, but he has a real good failure gives a person tremendous freedom. And yeah. I think I think that is amazing because you don't have to care anymore. Yeah, you just totally bombed and admit it. And I mean bombed at anything like a business or a performance or a book. You could you that process is itself art and you could dive into it, that that feeling and, and that process. But also like that now you're free to do whatever. There's no the expectations on you are really low. Yeah. And low expectations is related to higher happiness. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, that's that's I think why Denmark is is usually one of the top three, right? You've Denmark Costa Rica, Singapore, and there are a few they others. So much? Uh, well, the Danes tend to have very low expectations. Actually, directly from a number of Danes, that's how they explained the happiness rankings to me, which was very funny. But the the other aspect of that, I mean, and it's it's really, I would say, uh, a a result of one of the questions I like to ask, which is, do you have a favorite failure, right? a supposed failure, or an apparent failure? or a real failure that set you up for later success. Like, what is your favorite failure? And since we're talking about stand-up, it makes me think about Patton Oswalt, who's been through a lot of really, really, really difficult times in the last few years. A brilliant comedian, stand-up, comic. I mean, his stand-up is so good. But he, like I, have, have battled a lot with depression, which is maybe part of the reason that I gravitate to him so much. Uh, because he can make the painful so funny. <laughs> right. I think that I think that's uh, that's one of the when people try to define comedy, there's many different definitions, but one of them is to convert uh convert pain into something positive. Yeah. And his answer to what is your favorite failure was, but I'm paraphrasing here, uh he's also the voice for uh Remy the Rat and Ratatouille, for those people who have seen that movie, like I have a thousand times. It's one of the movies I played on repeat when I was writing uh, Tools of Titans. But uh, his answer was every time that I completely bombed on stage and woke up the next day and the world hadn't ended, mm. right? Because when you fail, in some cases, you realize that it's 
it's not as bad as you envisioned it to be. Like you get up, you can still go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> right? The barista doesn't care. They don't know, they don't even know about your failure. <laughs> and it's- and and you and you start to realize Okay, and this is, I think, uh, the, the, another quote that comes to mind. I'm blanking. I want to say it might be Brandon Stanton, but it could have been Franklin Leonard. It's one of the two. I think it was Franklin Leonard, actually, who created The Blacklist, which is such an awesome, amazing story in and of itself. But how, how he said, you know, my, I'm less concerned with taking too much risk now because I realize that I can survive almost any misstep and more concerned with not taking enough risk. Hmm. Uh, because he learned just as Patton Oswalt did that in most cases the world doesn't come to an end. Not only does the world doesn't come to an end, but like you say, most people don't know who you are. <laughs> so, yeah, nobody cares. Yeah. They're too busy thinking about their own stuff. Right. And even the people who you think care, they probably don't care. Yeah. So, you know, and then um, if you then the next day do something really good, that's what people tend to remember. They're not going to remember, oh, but he failed the time before. No, he just did something great. He created a good book or artwork or comedy performance or whatever. And uh um but I also think the word failure might be very strong. Like you don't have yeah, to necessarily it's, have it's pretty dramatic. Right? Yeah. And yeah. and so David Lynch, I mean he, he might even be referring to Dune, which was like his worst movie that he's hated. Like he I think that motivated him to do so much stuff afterwards because he felt like it was such a failure. But and you know, going out of business or bombing in a performance these feel so emotionally horrible, but you can all, when you often, you know, you can view it also as an experiment. You can experiment something, it doesn't work, and you figure out what to learn from it and, and you move on. So yeah. that's a failure yeah. too, but not as painful. No, I, I've really tried to view, to look at my experiences that, or experiments that don't work out is exactly that experiments, right? So it's, for instance, if you, um, God, there's, yeah, all right. So now a lot is coming to mind from this book. Uh, but, for instance, a number of people talk about uh, life saving you from what you want. And this comes up repeatedly, right? So it's, it's phrased differently. Sometimes uh, people will say, you need to allow life to save you from what you want so you can get what you need. Uh, but this, this has come up a lot. And this is part of the reason why I love asking people about failures is not to glorify failure. It's painful. Uh, right. But to, to show that these people aren't just a 24-7 highlight reel for their entire lives, right? Like Babe Ruth was the home run king, which we remember him for. He's also the strikeout king. Not many people remember that part. And that when I look back to, for instance, 4-Hour Chef, which we were talking about, brutal experience. I mean, it just like, it probably shaved like five years off my life. It's for so many reasons. I mean, it was so hard. And uh, very proud of the book, but man, that was a difficult birth. Really traumatic. And if that had not happened, I never would have started the podcast. Really? Yeah, because I, I started the podcast because I was so burned out on books that I needed something that I felt was totally different, lightweight, that I had complete control over because there was a distribution issue with Amazon Publishing and got boycotted by every retailer imaginable. I would and, go to every Barnes & Noble, by the way, and, and say, where's 4-Hour Chef? And uh, <laughs> just like innocently, and they'd like type into their computer and like, oh, I guess we have to order it. Because like they did all yeah, man, 4-Hour Chef. Nobody carried it. But if I hadn't had that experience, I don't think the podcast would have happened. And if the po- I mean, the podcast now, good God. I mean, when if people come up and talk to me on the street, they don't talk about the books. Yo, let me ask you about that, because I have the same experience. I've been writing and publishing. This is the first year since 2003 
I'm not publishing a book. So I've published 18 <laughs> books. You're a machine. And <laughs> I do, I write every day. But now when people stop me in the street, they say, I love the podcast. Mm -hmm. And you, a single episode of your podcast will probably be listened to by as many people who buy this book. I'm guessing yeah, roughly, yeah. maybe quite, two episodes. Quite possible, yeah. But, but you'll do 50 episodes or 100 episodes in the year. And um, it makes one wonder, well, why write a book at all? Yeah, I, I I do still think. I mean, financially, I'm much better off focusing on the podcast than doing more books. And and my don't get me wrong, I'm in a very fortunate position where the books do well, and uh, uh, and I, I'm I'm paid well for them. But relatively speaking, I mean, the economics of publishing are terrible compared to horrible. Like a podcast is so much more appealing. Uh, so hour for hour, one could argue the podcast would be better use of time, but for many different reasons, books and text still have a magical place in our minds. They, they they just do, and because I guess a podcast is somehow ephemeral. Like you did it this week. Okay, what's now the next week? What's the new thing? And and, and this what, is like book. The this book will stay forever. It's on yeah, the library forever. Right. I, I want people to read a book like Tribe of Mentors and be able to refer to it for. 10 plus years. That's the goal. So the, the, the advice and the recommendations and how, say, the co-founder of Facebook, Dustin, says no and why he says no, or the workout routines of, say, Dan Gable, who's arguably the most legendary wrestler and wrestling coach of the last 100 years, who's, who still could kick just about any ass on the planet, and he's had two hip replacements, older dude. All of that is timeless. Like It can be used at any time. So for me... The podcast is how I explore, and the books are how I record, if that makes sense. It's yeah. like, all right, I went through these following years of experience, and my cliff notes are the books. Oh, you're gonna first you convinced me to quadruple down on the podcast. Now you just convinced me to write another book. So uh, <laughs> gotta be careful hanging out with me. <laughs> I know every time. What are you doing? Um, so David Lynch has a whole bunch of stuff. He he answers really succinctly all your questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like he's one liners. Got, he's got some good ones. But um, uh, uh, this is so true. You ask, what are bad recommendations you hear in your profession or area of expertise? Just you know, interesting question. Um, so he says, bad advice is, even if you don't like it, do it for the money. And I agree with that so much because uh, if you don't like something, you're never going to be the best at it. There's no. just no chance. No, no, because there'll be and, somebody else out there just as smart who happens to love whatever it is you don't like doing. Right. So you're going to make less money you're gonna, than that person. You're going to be unhappy. And, and to make money costs years of, you know, doing something good. So you're going to lose years of your life. That And that relates to the one of the questions I ask, right? Like, what's the opportunity cost? Yeah. All right, if you spend a year or two on something you dislike, what what are the potential opportunity costs? I mean, aside from the very morbid thought, perhaps, that you could just get hit by a bus six months from now anyway. That, that happens every single day. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly I've been thinking a lot about that, especially with you know Terry Lachlan, who's in this book, who died two weeks Two weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, uh, you know, he never got to see the book. Uh, fortunately, he's in the book to share his learnings. But uh, yeah, doing it for the money, and and in fairness, someone could say, "Well, easier for you guys to say." Like you have 
comfortable financial existences or whatever it might be. But even when you don't, yes, you need to make ends meet. But when I've seen people make decisions in favor of, say, uh, earning instead of learning during certain critical points, like that is a major fork in the road. Earning instead of learning. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I've definitely... Am, am an example of this doing it for the money or doing it for love where I actually was in the money business for many years, which is I was uh, ran a hedge fund and I was writing about money and I was going on CNBC and I was, I was doing all these things only for the money. And there are ways to invest when you're not doing it for the money, but I, this was my full-time thing and I just did not enjoy it. But I thought, oh, this will be the way to get rich and then I could do what, whatever else I want. And so I basically, I don't want to say I lost 10 years of my life because I certainly learned a lot, but it's only when I started doing the things I love that life became better. I became less anxious, less depressed, uh, more fulfilled, and ultimately made more money. Absolutely. And and also coming back to the sort of embracing your weird, weird self and looking at the quirks that you might think are unique flaws, but are probably not unique flaws. Uh, when you make an attempt to chronically hide those things, I think there's a low-level anxiety at all times due to that internal conflict. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it's... You're constantly self-censoring. Right, when you, and when you're... You're basically lying. So yeah. you're, you're lying to the other person, no, I am like this instead of scared about this or, or nervous about this or weak at this. So when you, li- when you split your life into two, there's the truthful world inside of you and then there's the lying world that you're expressing to a certain number of people it's hard enough at least for me to deal with my own life let alone two lives that i'm trying to live and that's that's the problem with with doing things and and living a whole life that you don't love yeah yeah and and for instance i think it's adam fisher in this book who's a name i mean i love introducing people in the books or the podcast that most people have not heard of uh, Adam Fisher, I think this is his pull quote, but I mean, I, I haven't memorized 140 of them. Uh, he was recently brought on to be head of macro and real estate investing for Soros. So this is a big job, big, 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 big job, one of the biggest in the investment world. And I want to say this is his quote. If it's misattributed, then I apologize. But along the lines of, and this is the point I was going to make, borrowing from him, that uh, this is my words now. So embracing your weird self and sharing certain aspects of yourself vulnerably, at least as a content creator, is not the same thing as uh, doing what he cautions against, which is saying, that's just the way I am, or you know, I'm keeping it real, choose your verbiage, which is a deflection that allows you to avoid working on yourself. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's an interesting distinction. That's kind of the problem with radical honesty a little bit. You yep. sort of feel like they're people who who say they're radically honest sort of feel like they can have they're a lot, they're giving themselves permission to have no filter rather than saying, "Oh, maybe if I'm being honest with myself, maybe I should have a filter on some of these things and work yeah. on myself a little better." Yeah. So, yeah, totally. I, I think that uh, there are certain tools that in excess become their opposite, right? So if honesty is helpful, if you take it almost anything to a, a radical extreme, <laughs> there's actually a really funny article written by 
AJ Jacobs about ra- his experiment oh, yeah. with radical honesty called I Think You're Fat, which <laughs> is the title of the piece for Esquire. Uh, it becomes damaging. It becomes selfish, right? As opposed to helpful and transparent. Uh, I think Sam Harris's book, Lying, which is super short, it's like 80 pages long, is actually a really good discussion of this. Uh, but um, certainly, I just wanted to draw that, that distinction. I, I find also, even as, um, look, as an interviewer on a podcast or, or as an investor, um, if you don't understand something, you need to basically say right away, I don't understand what you just said. Yeah. Can you explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old? And and because let's say you're an you're let's put this in the point of view of an investor, if you don't uh, if you don't ask the question now and you write the check, you're you're screwed. Yeah, you're done. And and you know the same thing is true as a as a writer. Like if you don't ask the right question, you're going to write the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. You know how actually now that I th- I hadn't even thought about this, but one of the ways that I started to pay more attention to my intuition was in meeting founders and and potential. Uh, investments, uh, because there were a few cases where I just got a really weird feeling mm. in meeting founders, or conversely, I got a really confident, oddly comfortable feeling. And uh, in every single case where I followed one or the other, they worked out hundred hundred percent. When it was that strong, not like oh, like yeah, I, I feel like this is a. Six out of ten. No, it's when it was either like, "Wow, I feel really uncomfortable with this person. I don't feel like they're telling me the truth, but I don't have any objective data to support that because look, there are all these smart investors who've already given them money." Or on the opposite side, it's like, "Well, they've been turned down by A, B, and C, but like the fundamentals make sense to me, and like I just feel this person very uniquely has a capability and a commitment to this." When I've paid attention to it. And I, by the way, people at home, I'm not suggesting that you try to become like a blindfolded Luke Skywalker of investing. Uh, but I'm just saying, in my personal experience, that was one of the arenas in which I realized, oh, this intuition, gut feeling stuff is actually not just for like didgeridoo playing, you know, burners. Well, how do you think you develop your intuition more? Lis- creating space to listen. So that could be meditation. It could be you're in line at, say, a coffee shop or whatever, a sandwich shop, and instead of checking your phone, you just t- you stop to just take like three deep breaths and just listen to the sounds around you, creating space. So in other words, for me, trying to strip out noise or not add more noise. Hmm. And, and just by having more space, you might hear, in the beginning, this was true for me, I, I feel like I am. I have a. I have a stronger signal now, where I can listen to the radio station that is my intuition. Whereas before, I was like, and I could barely hear it, and it just took practice, listening really carefully and tuning. And in the beginning, with a lot of this, Tim O'Reilly and I just had a really, really cool conversation that got into this, and he's he's thought about this even more than I have. Tim O'Reilly, one of incredible tech innovator. Uh, he's been called the Oracle of Silicon Valley or the trend spotter because he he just spots things years in advance. Really interesting guy. And he was the one who really reinforced, actually he's in here. Yeah, he's in Tribe of Mentors. Uh, talked about just creating space to listen. And in the beginning, it might just be a whisper, might just be a little trickle. And then over time, you hone it and you're like, okay, no, now I can tell. Instead of the third meeting, 
I know right now I'm not going to, I cannot work with this person because it's, on multiple levels, it's a non-fit and you can then make faster, better decisions for everybody. Uh, so for me, I, getting better at it was, was listening to it or listening, just listening for anything and creating a little more space. And secondarily, uh, proving to myself that it was of value by A, say reading about thinking fast, thinking slow, or Blink would be another example by Malcolm Gladwell. Cases where that intuitive, rapid thinking, sort of subconsciously aided thinking is both better and in some cases more complete than endless pro and cons list, pro and con lists. And then lastly, just noticing in a few circumstances when I created a little bit of space, like, oh, wow, I actually made much better decisions when I listened to that first, that first impression. Mm. Uh, that's, that's how it's worked for me. So I, I like this, uh, this next quote, uh, and th this chapter is about John Call, who's... John Call, yeah, otherwise known as Juji Mufu. This guy's hilarious, and he's also freakishly athletic and strong. Uh, he's he's a he's an acrobat. He's a he's 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 What's an anabolic. He's acrobat? nicknamed the anabolic acrobat because he looks like a bodybuilder. He's a humongous guy, yet he can do splits in between chairs and backflips and all sorts of capoeira moves and parkour movements, and free running movements. I suppose better said. Uh, and just has the most peculiar and awesome sense of humor. Uh, he, I, I first found him a few years ago, and has he's become a, a phenom on Instagram. And I think he's going to have a really, really, really long career in whatever he chooses because he's also switched gears so many times. Uh, but that's John Call. Yeah. So, so you might see a video of him, uh, say lifting five or six or 700 pounds in a bunch of different odd lifts with someone else while they're wearing horse head masks and running around like with flaming tails on or on roller skates. I mean, it's all so absurd. I mean, we're talking about absurdism, right? I mean, absurdism is kind of its own topic and, and uh, <laughs> there are people in the book who get into all of the details of how they utilize it. But uh, yeah, I think absurdity, absurdity in general is really underrated. Uh, as a as a pattern interrupt, I think it's. I think that's. I think that's true. I think um, pattern interrupts are so important in in many areas of life. Like you wanna, if you wanna kind of get control of, I don't know what you call it, the frame that you're in. Just being absurdist in a smart way will 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 you know everybody gets confused and then you're you're in charge. Yeah. So that oh, works. Yeah. And, and I say this from the point of view of attempting to do stand up comedy. If you're on the stage and the crowd and you kind of confuse the crowd in an intelligent way for a few seconds, you're now in control of the crowd. Yeah. And that works. Oh, it works really well. Like Darren Brown, who's a, some people think of him as a mentalist, but certainly an incredible performer. Darren Brown from the UK. Uh, people should just look up on YouTube, D-E-R-R-E-N Brown, and you can see him do things like pay people in New York City with a wallet full of bright white bills printed out on printer paper but cut to the same size as bills it's unbelievable what this guy can do oh, and, and it's that. just a game of confusion i mean in misdirection for the most part but uh yeah so so, so the the uh john call i i just had to include because I, th I think he's he's so unique well i like this quote uh if you can't laugh at it you lose yeah which is which is so interesting because 
uh, there's lots of painful situations uh, where we can all be sitting in a hospital waiting for news, but it's still important to, I don't know, laughter, laughter cures the body. Laughter does cure the body. And the point that he makes with this too, uh, I'm just going to pull this up real quickly. Did you take control of my book? I did just take control of your it's book. It's absurd. I know, it's absurd. So the, his answer to, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? And his was, if you can't laugh at it, you lose. But the point he makes, right, is that the exceptions to the quote suggest a powerful lesson. This is what he says. You wouldn't laugh when people die, especially someone you love, but that's because you can't always win in life. Sometimes we do lose but we better be able to distinguish between real loss and weakness of character. Getting a scratch on your car, forgetting to tra- take the trash down to the curb before the weekly pickup or annoying things da, 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 that you probably should be laughing about sooner rather than later. Uh, and then it goes on and on. But it's it's also the contrast, right? And the realization that you know sometimes in life you do chalk up a loss. Well, and, uh, and also I think even when someone dies, often the best funerals is when or when people are in the eulogies are talking about the funny or fun things that this person reminds you of. Oh, totally. So totally. Uh, that often creates a lot of a lot of fun, um, or a lot of you know relief. Relief. Yes, I liked all of the interviews, but I'm, I've been focusing a little bit on the quotes you're pondering because they're a little easier to talk about. Um, oh, I like this one. This was like a, a Chinese Zen monk. Uh, uh, somebody's asked. What is the seed of enlightenment? Union said, freedom from artificiality, which I think is so important. Like we could spend yeah. our whole lives being artificial. And then what were you when by the time you died? Yeah, you were, you were an actor. Right. And I think some, sometimes people give the advice, just be yourself. And I think that's very hard advice to follow because we're all many things. But I think just hyper vigilantly trying not to be artificial is super important. It's hard for me to know who I am, but I definitely know when I'm being artificial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know when you're doing something that's discordant, right? Like when you have that internal conflict over something that you said or are planning to do or committed to, like you feel that, right? And um, I I think part of the reason it's so hard to know yourself is that everyone's a work in progress. I mean, like every breath you take, every, say, outing you choose, you leave at 1.15 p.m. instead of 12.45. Like, that's a life-changing event. Like, the external world, your entire experience of that day is different because you chose a different time. And since you're a work in progress, it's very hard to know yourself, but there are certain deep, essential characteristics or values or predispositions, and when you violate those, you feel the artificiality, and uh, or, or you don't because you're not aware because you're because you're afraid to to not make money, or you're afraid to lose your job, or you're afraid to lose the relationship. You know when when people see the real you, even yeah. though that could be the most powerful potion for success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's. I mean, there's. Oh God, I'm blanking on who said this, but it was. I'd I'd rather. I'd rather fail in freedom than succeed in chains. And I mean, that relates to artificiality, right? Would you rather people love you for something you're not or have a smaller group of people love you for who and what you are, you know, who you are and what you can do? And that's, it's not, I'm to imply that that's easy, right? Right. I think Uh, it's hard. It's hard. But uh, to to pull in Nassim Taleb, uh, he's talked about, 
fragile and anti-fragile and fragile being, say, a politician, those who care about the few who criticize them more than the, the masses who, say, support them, and then the artist being anti-fragile in the opposite direction because they care more about the few who like or love them than the many who do not. I think that's, that's an incredibly valuable quote. Did Nassim Taleb say that in Anti-Fragile? He, it was actually a quote of his prior to Anti-Fragile, so he may have used the word robust and non-robust in that case. I think, I think it was from either Black Swan or some of his writing outside of the books. You know what, I take it back. It was in, from The Bed of Procrustes, which is his short book of aphorisms. Right, because Anti-Fragile, I've I've spoken to him about it and it's it's very much economics based and I was spoke to, to him about it because I was worried about being personally fragile. Yeah. I wanted to be personally anti-fragile both in a medical sense and in, in an emotional sense. Yeah. And that's very difficult. I think um I think with this next book he's he's dealing with that uh skin in the game. But uh so then you have I don't know how you, oh uh, we've both had I think Amanda Palmer on our podcast, right? You've had her, I've had her on. Um, Neil Gaiman is her husband. He's also, I don't know if you're like me. I mean, yeah, I know you've been into comic books, but The Sandman was oh, like yeah. oh, one yeah. of the all-time greatest comic book series ever. And before that, his work with Alan Moore on like Swamp Thing and I don't know, so much stuff. And then his his fiction since then, like uh, American Gods. Fiction, movies, children's books, everything. He's he's amazing. And so I was so happy to see him in this book. Um, your pull quote from him is, <laughs> stop doing whatever else I am doing because it isn't actually work and go and write something, which I guess implies <laughs> for him, he knows his strength is and his love is writing. So everything else he's doing is not writing. So he might as well be writing. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, his commencement speech is one of the best commencement speeches I've ever seen, which I encourage everyone to check out. You can find it for free on the web if you just search Neil Neil Gaiman, G-A-I-M-A-N, commencement speech. Uh, but the, the punchline, or I should say the headline, is make good art. Like, when in doubt, make good art. And he, and he talks about that, and it's beautifully delivered. Uh, but this is, this is a reminder, and there's another one that's related to this uh, in here. It might be Sarah Lewis, but... Um, it could be off, but like the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right? So that's really important. Yeah, and I think people forget it. You can divide yourself up into you know many different things that you're focused on and do nothing well. I mean, that's the whole cliche of you know if you try to do everything, you're going to do everything half-assed. Or I'm I'm misquoting the cliche even, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, but he has some advice though about how to uh, stay focused so he could have the best possible writing. So he says, you know, he asks himself, and this is Neil Gaiman, have I had enough sleep? Have I eaten? Would it be a good idea to go for a short walk? And those three things are really important because your body is where all of your energy comes from. And maybe a little bit too from lack of stress and so on. But if you sleep to rejuvenate and people think, oh, no, I only need five hours of sleep. No, you need, you need eight hours of sleep. I need probably 12. But then <laughs> have I eaten? People don't eat. Pro eat food is is the 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 gas for the car. Like you need to, yeah. to eat well. And would it be a good idea to go for a short walk? You know, that's kind of a precursor to exercise. But you don't even need to exercise probably as much as you exercise, Tim. But sometimes a walk is like just moving the body yeah. is important. Yeah, it is. And I I I, I, sh I would also build on that and say sometimes we're 
inclined. And you know, maybe if I were to write a book modeled after Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, it would be called Man's Search for Complexity, but it would be about the sort of futile insertion of complexity in so many areas where simple answers are the right answers. Right. So, so for instance, I, I think that at least I have had the experience and many of my friends have had the experience of feeling really off for a day or two and deciding that there's some type of internal conflict or existential dilemma that they really need to sort out on paper and to put together some type of journaling and so forth and so on. And it just turns out they skipped, they didn't eat within an hour and a half of getting up. <laughs> and so what they really need is just like a, a small handful of macadamia nuts in the morning before they forget. And that's the answer. They don't need to figure out all of the riddles of the universe. It just so happens that they skip breakfast for two mornings. And that's yeah. it. It's so funny because, like, basically, to live a slightly better life tomorrow than today, just eat, sleep, move better, and yeah. avoid people you don't like or who or who drain who or who you know are toxic in some way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, that's all it is. Yeah, and it's it's the the pull quote we talked about earlier, which was the construct in effect. You know, good life is composed of of or great life is composed of great days. Uh, is part of the reason why I focus so much with all of these profiles on morning routines, uh, the scripts that they follow, if they have any wind-down routines for, say, sleep, what they do when they're overwhelmed or unfocused. That's a really important one also. And you start to collect these, these blocks. And so you have this collection of building blocks on the floor. And when you're a kid, you don't necessarily use all the blocks. You pick a handful, you make something that has a semblance of working, and then you you give it a shot and you try to construct it. And I think that uh, for uh, the the whole purpose of putting together a really broad spectrum of people, I mean, you have super athletes, then you have Neil Gaiman, who's a super writer, but certainly wouldn't consider himself a super athlete. You have people who are in their 70s or 80s, then you have people who are in their 20s, is so that whoever is coming through this, putting together their own choose your own adventure book for themselves and treating it like a buffet can tease out. They're like, oh, actually this person, based on how they describe their most painful personal failure is really similar to me in a, these following ways. Okay, let me borrow this from them because if it worked for them, it might work for me. And then, oh, I aspire to be more like Matt Fraser or uh, you know, Annie Torres daughter. These are two very famous CrossFit athletes. So uh, I'm going to take a few pieces of their routine since it's aspirational. That's where I want to go. And I'm going to layer that in. And then you lay it all out over the span of, say, a day or a week. And you're like, okay, now this is what my experiment looks like. So for two weeks, I'm going to do these following things. And it can really be small. It can be so small. Like uh, you know, Matt Fraser, I mentioned, really, really incredibly impressive uh, CrossFit champion. Certainly one of the best in the world. I think the most recent CrossFit Games champion, and he mentioned a device called the Philips Wake Up Light, which is an alarm clock that wakes you with a very slow increase in light as opposed to sound, right? And so I asked him what device or what purchase of less than $100 had most positively impacted his life in the last few years. And he said, by far and away, this device. It's like, okay, well, that's not any type of burden. You're just replacing whatever you currently use with a different alarm clock. That's it. Right? So there's, it's, it's something with zero drag. Like There's no hurdle with something like that. And then you layer in a couple of them. 
And uh, for, I'll give you one more that I've been using constantly, which I think you might like. Have you ever met me? I don't know if you've met Kyle Maynard. Uh, so no. Kyle Maynard was born a congenital quad amputee. So his arms end at his upper arms mm. uh, and then his legs end close to the hips. Nonetheless, became a member of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. I kid you not. And uh, he lost every match his first season, not too surprising. And uh, parents, other parents were saying it was child abuse. And then he started winning, and then he became really good and started winning. How do you win? Uh, you'd have to see it to believe it. There's video of, of Kyle and I messing around and him like taking me down. It's, it's incredible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Then people were saying it was an unfair advantage. Anyway, uh, he's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro without any prosthetics, so he military crawled up in Mount Kilimanjaro. The guy's a stud. And he was taught by a really well-known CEO this mental uh, rule of thumb or a heuristic that really helped him to make decisions. And it was when you're considering, say, a new hire or a speaking engagement or an opportunity or an invitation out to a meal, rank it from one to 10, but you can't use a seven. And that's fascinating. That line. Yes, the last part is the most important. So, which, which, by the way, is absurd. Right? Yeah. So that's where you inject absurdism to sort of wake people up and say, okay, like, because at first I'm thinking, okay, I can rank everything from one to ten, but like, it's absurd to just take out this random number seven. Now it is, but there's a, there's a logic to the seeming absurdity. Okay. Right? Because seven is like the non-offensive Switzerland of answers. It's a very safe. B student answer. Whereas if you remove the seven, now you have to evaluate and give it either a six, which is barely passing. So that's a no. So that's right. like that's barely beyond acceptable. Or it's an eight, which is I'm st I'm quite stoked about this. Right. And that has made my decisions about so many things so much easier. So so let's let's veer into that because a lot of your questions that you ask every single person revolves around. How do you say no? Mm -hmm. Or why do you say no? How do you say no? What's the best? What you know? What's the best? Do you hurt feeling? You know, yeah. What's the, the language? Thing. What's the approach? What's and, the template? And, and what I love here too is, and this is the whole process is our thing. You, like someone wrote, Wendy, um, what's her name? McNaughton. McNaught McNaughton says no to you on. She doesn't want to do this. Your 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 questions. She doesn't want to answer your questions. She doesn't want to be in this book. And you asked, can you? Um, uh, put her no letter rejection in, letter. Yeah, in this. Book. Yeah, it was because the, she she sent me. Uh, she was just out of bandwidth, and uh, so Wendy's an amazing illustrator. I recommend everybody check out her work. You've probably seen her work and just don't know it. And she sent me such a thoughtful, well crafted rejection letter that I asked her if I could include the rejection letter because I thought this is a really beautiful, well constructed letter for letting someone down. Where I don't feel. I, I'm disappointed that she's not in the book. But she per is se. In the book. No, no, exactly. She stands yeah, out. Yeah, she. Uh, well, there are three of them, right? So, I mean, I was, yeah, I was, yeah, I was turned down by many, many people. Mm. But the there were many turndowns that were so good. I asked him if I could include them in books. That includes, you know, Neil Stevenson, who's one of the most incredible science fiction writers right. ever. I mean, Snow Crash, Cryptonomicon. The guy is incredible. Uh, Danny Meyer, restaurateur. You know, Shake Shack, yeah. and many, many, many others. Uh, and, and their approaches were so different, but had shared DNA in so much as they were well written and were clearly a no. 
right? There was no, hey, reach out to me in three months and maybe we'll talk about it. There was none of that. It was clearly, no, I can't do this. But done in such a... Elegance. Elegant way, exactly. That I came away having more respect for them and no ill will. I was like, okay, these need to be in the book. So yeah. (laughs) So a lot of it is focusing on saying no, uh, partially because, uh, and you know this, and I think many people maybe instinctively feel this, that uh, most wasted time and wasted years and so on, when you add it all up, certainly wasted years, is not from chasing terrible ideas. It's from saying yes to all the sevens. It's saying, mm-hmm. it's saying yes to all of the invitations and commitments and so on out of guilt or fear of missing out uh, or obligation. That's what you drown in. Like you, you, it's so hard to break through and do anything great or meaningful if you're being driven by these lukewarm commitments to kind of cool things. So to defend against that, having different approaches and templates and tools for saying no is, is hugely important. It's so important. And uh, you know, for me, I'll show you here. Let me. I'll show. I'll show you something. And people won't have this graphic, but you can. You can explain what you're seeing. The more, the more you are exposed to the public or have even small degree of success, the harder this becomes. I mean, the higher the volume of inbound that you receive, and also people get very disappointed. People get very disappointed. So I mean, look at the top left. Those are my unread email. What's the number count? Uh, three hundred fifty-four thousand seven hundred ninety-nine yeah. unread emails. Unread emails. So wait, wait, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, you got me beat. Oh, you might have I, me I beat. don't. I don't know if I have you beat. Um, I, and by the way, this is not a competition. I encourage you to engage. Okay, in. Okay, look at my unread emails. Just wow. I don't have, I don't have you beat. But that, that's that's very very respectable. Two hundred eighty-two thousand. And eighty four, <laughs> and these are not with, and for you and me, these well, are not the spam. You emails. know, the one that stresses me out even more than that is the fact that you have three thousand three hundred forty one drafts. Yeah, because sometimes <laughs> I'll start and I'm like, okay, I don't really feel like it anymore. <laughs> so, oh my god. <laughs> so, all of that is to say that very often it seems the people who just become in the minds of many legendary icons are not like the untouchable Michael Jordan, Pablo Picasso's of everything. They have a few things that they're quite good at. They might not even be the best, but they're really, 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 really good at saying no to distractions. Mm. And they're really good at not getting sidetracked. I think Steve Jobs is an example of that. Uh, and there's there's a quote from him on saying no in this book somewhere, but it's you know it's not the one thing that you say yes to; it's the thousands of things that you say no to that define what you can do. Uh, I, I think it's such an important concept. I mean, look, I even wrote a book called The Power of No. Yeah, right. And yet, I'm um, I'm not that great at saying no. I mean, the reason sometimes you write books, and you know this from writing these these books, you write a book because. The topics are hard for you, and yeah. so and so like like Brad Pitt's not going to write a book about how to meet girls. That would be that would be a useless book. But if, for someone like me to write a book like that, that would probably be the be the most amazing book in the universe of the topic. So it's the same thing for me with the power of no. Like it's it's I've had to learn so 
much just to say one no. It's so difficult, yeah. but it's so important. It's, and it's it gets, worth a book. And it gets easier. Just like the meditation, just like physical training, uh, just like my eating a Chipotle burrito bowl with no rice and blah, blah, blah. I can give you the exact specs every day for lunch. Once you templatize it, once you practice it, it becomes something you can put on autopilot, right? So the saying no for me has been so difficult in many cases historically. And now I have a handful of phrases, right? I mean, that's like, it's incredible how a handful of phrases can change your entire life because it makes it easier for you to say no. I'll give you one. This, I remember I saw, I got, I got declined. I mean, I get rejected and declined for all sorts of stuff all the time. And uh, I remember I got one from someone. I really wanted to have uh, coffee or lunch with them. And I'd met them in person, had dinner with them before. Right? Can you say their name? Uh, no, I don't want to. I don't want right. to. I don't, I don't think they'd mind, but I'd rather err okay. on the side of being safe. Very well-known business icon billionaire. And I asked, and I had a very specific reason. It wasn't, hey, can I pick your brain over coffee, which is the worst request you could ever right. make of any busy person, by the way. But it was something like, I'd love to ask you about A, B, and C. Perhaps we could grab a coffee. And that was my hope. And the response was, I'd really love to do that, but uh, I'm taking a meeting, uh, what did he say? I'm taking a meeting vacation <laughs> or I'm on a no meeting diet. Those I've received two different versions of that for X period of time. <laughs> so it wasn't explaining the specifics of why he didn't want to meet with me. It wasn't personal. He was just on like a, a no, and I've used that for so many things. No, I'm, I'm currently on a no conference call diet. <laughs> or I'm taking taking a vacation from in-person meetings for X period of time across the board as a policy. I feel like that could be true that he's doing that or it could not be. For me, it doesn't matter. It's okay. It worked uh, and it doesn't matter on some level if it's offensive. I mean, you have to defend your time, but it was so short. Here's the thing. It wasn't like a five paragraph decline because that takes a lot of time in and of itself. Right. And you can't argue with it. Yeah, you can't argue with it. And, and that's the other thing. And I've heard you mention this before which is, uh, actually, I think it was in Tools of Titans where he talked about not giving someone an explanation because then it gives them grounds for trying to counter. Right. Right. You just say, no, I'm sorry, I really can't make it. Which is that, really the that, hardest, but that's yeah. a, pr a good practice. Yeah, it's a great practice where you say, you know, really wish I could, just can't make this work. You know, wishing you luck from the sidelines, Tim. Boom, that's it. Yeah. End. Uh, and that's another line, by the way, like wishing you luck from this. I'll, I'll be cheering for you, for you on the sidelines uh, is, is one. one that I borrowed from somebody else. I think, I think maybe Guy Kawasaki sent that to me at one point. Uh, couldn't make something. He's, he is some really masterful uh, email wordsmithing that he uses. And I'm pretty sure, oh no, his was, I'll be raising a glass for you like on the sidelines or something like that. See, and I, my, my go-to technique, which for better or for worse, which is why you see so many drafts in my email, is to start saying no in some way. And then I'm just like, ah, I'm not even going to say no. I'm just <laughs> yeah. not going to respond. Yeah. They might hate. Usually what happens is people hate you. I Because I, I, I've done this so many times. People hate you for between one and six months. And then they really like you uh, after that if you communicate with them. Because yep. they're like, oh, he's back from the dead. Where were you? <laughs> and then they feel good about it. So yeah. I figure like, okay, I don't have to say no because I wasn't planning on talking to them for six months anyway. And then I'll talk to them in six months and they'll be happy. Yeah. So Well, I'll give you, and, and sometimes it takes longer for them to get it. And it's okay for them to be offended because where they are in life or wherever the life finds them at that point in time, they, they're, they're not in a position 
nor should they be required to empathize with your situation, right? Like most people do not have 340 or 220,000 unread email. And so it's impossible for someone who's say I'll give you I'll give you a personal example. This 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 might be amusing. So uh, I wrote the 4-hour work week which at the time was titled Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit. That was the working title because that was the name of this lecture that I taught twice a year at Princeton, High Tech Entrepreneurship. Okay. And I've put together bound, spiral-bound galleys. So actually, it had progressed because a number of retailers hated, understandably, Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit. It became the 4-Hour Workweek because I did the Google AdWords testing and all that stuff that helped me to figure out the title. And I reached out to a bunch of people as a first-time author, as one does, because you're encouraged by the publisher and so on, you reach out to people for blurbs, right? So, would you mind reading this and considering giving me a cover blurb? And I, I would word it more uh, artfully than that, but nonetheless, hat in hand, I'm reaching out to people I don't know to try to get blurbs. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't even know if he remembers this. So, Seth, Seth Godin, right? I love Seth. I mean, Seth is he is he is such a wise guy not like a wise guy he's a he's a wise man yeah. who only really touches the tip of the iceberg of what he knows with what he writes about and i mean i i feel that's very fair to say like you yeah. sit down at least when i sit down and talk to seth like his the sort of comprehensive way in which he has crafted a unique life for himself and his family is really spectacular i mean it's it's extremely impressive and so i sent this is actually part of the reason that I don't respond to most of my email. And you'll see where this is going. <laughs> uh, I sent an email to Seth. I don't know Seth. Seth doesn't know me. And I, I asked with this long email, in retrospect, it's like, dude, what are you doing and to begin with sending like a mini novel as an ask? You got to make it shorter. But it was this long email, which he took the time to read and he responded very shortly with something like, Sorry, I really can't make this work right now. Regards, Seth. Right, <laughs> and I was so upset by this. <laughs> I'm so upset. I would not have been. I would have been less upset had I not heard back. But you know the the brevity of the answer led me to think because at that time I had nothing going on. I mean, I thought I was very busy at the time, but in comparison with what I know my life to be now and what I now know Seth's life to be, I wasn't one thousandth as busy as Seth. Not even close, right? And I was like, what do you, like how can he not have time to even like read the manuscript and like saying it now? It's so completely comically ridiculous that I would expect someone that busy to just be like, oh yeah, I have nothing better to do than to accept an unsolicited like 20 hour homework assignment. <laughs> but but do you know what I mean? So now I get emails all the every week I get dozens of emails. Hey, could you blurb this? Number one, I have an auto response that says, Hi, I'm probably not going to be able to read your email, but here are a few things you might want to know that could answer your questions. Number one, I don't do blurbs for books for the following reasons. Number two, like I don't do this. Number three, I can't do this. Uh, so I already have that, which absolves me of some responsibility to respond. Uh but I've had a number of people, well, I, every year, a number of people get so righteously indignant and infuriated because I won't do X for them. And they're like, how can you not have an hour 
to like yeah. meet with me and have coffee. And it's like, because I have 340,000 other people like you asking me for the same thing whose arguments are equally or more compelling. And it's not like a, a bragging thing. No, it's a fucking disaster. It's not bragging. It's, it, and the thing is too, people then say, well, it'll only take uh, only five minutes of coffee, I promise. It's never five minutes. No way, never. Because there's all these iconic stories, like he said he only had five minutes and then it turned into a two-hour meeting. So that's what they're really going for. Yeah. And um, <laughs> uh, they, they, you know, and then there's also the typical thing, uh, can I, can, uh, is there anything I can help you with? Uh, you know, that's their way to kind of get in. And I'm like, that, that's also a homework assignment. Like I now I have to think of what you, who I don't know, can help me with. I don't even know what I can help me with, let alone yeah. you. Well, not only that, it's so clearly a setup, right? So uh, my favorite one, I don't know where this language comes from, but oh man, it's like gives me the heebie-jeebies. Whenever I get an email that's something along the lines of, what can I do to add value for you? And there's oh, yeah. like, and I'm like, red flag, red flag. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, sometimes though, there's definitely a huge ask that I cannot deliver coming two months from now. And so it's like, no, I'm good. You know, I, I had someone who was doing that with me for years. Okay. And just popping up every few months, like, is there anything you need help with? So finally I said, yeah. And I gave him like this impossibly huge task. I have not heard back. So, and it's been like now a year. So I assume he's just dropped off the map. But uh, I have a new book that I'd love you to ghost write. Right. Can you write like a trilogy about a space galaxy? Um, let me see. What I have, I have notes all over here. Let's take yeah. some of these. Um, Oh, I thought this one was good from from Annie Duke, the poker player. Yeah. Uh, when two extreme opinions meet, the truth lies gen generally somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So I think that's I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It is, and it's it's also meant. You know, the reason I chose this for myself is that I can have very strong, what many people would consider extreme opinions or perspectives on things, and I would like to believe that sometimes they're accurate. <laughs> <laughs> an accurate reflection of reality. But it's a reminder for myself that if I meet someone who seems diametrically opposed, A, that it may just seem that we're diametrically opposed or that we are opposed, in fact, but only in that small sliver of life that is this one opinion about one subject. So not to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because we disagree on one thing that is very polarizing. Abortion in that case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm practicing uh, my stand-up. Yeah, no, this is but. good. This is good. Uh, you got to work on your material, uh, and then at the same time, realizing that maybe the more accurate reflection of truth is somewhere in between, right? And that what I'm looking at is a binary situation where you, you are either for this or you're against it, which you hear quite a bit, right? You're you're either. You're either like on the bus or you're in the way. And there, there are these, these false dichotomies that are created all over the place, especially these days. My God, I mean, yeah. really, it's like you look on social media and at headlines and it's like five new ways to get pissed off at your neighbor today. It's like the vocabulary of society has shrunk to only be for or against. Yeah, and it's, I hate to say it, but it's seldom that simple, right? Uh, and when I, for instance, you know, I went on this meditation retreat recently and I heard someone say, <clears throat> he was, who was very, very uh, insightful in many, many other ways, but this uh, caught my attention because I disagreed with it, which was any human being who kills another human being has to be at the height of confusion. 
And I was like, well, that's a very strong statement. You know, any human being has to be. I'm very uh, more and more cautious about the always, never type statements. And that's just patently not true as far as I'm concerned, right? It's like if someone gave you a gun, they said, I'm going to shoot your kid in the head unless you put a bullet in my head. You're not confused. You're making a very, very rational decision to put a bullet in that person's head. And so there are, I mean, the hypothetical. Your your, your guide to parenting? (laughs) Tim Ferriss' guide to parenting. Parable number one. Uh, What if? uh, No, uh, I think the guide to parenting is going to wait a long time if it ever happens. But first Here's how to build a DIY Skinner box. No, I'm not going to put my kid in a Skinner box, people. But uh, the 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 effort to live in the gray, I think, is really important for a reflective life with some degree of inner peace. And there are people who disagree with this. There are some people who who function very well with black and white for all things. And uh, there's some jobs that I think support that well, 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 well it's interesting relating to the jobs like so I went to graduate school for computer science and I found that everybody was either super super libertarian or super super liberal because then it's like an algorithm how do you feel about this topic you can run it through the libertarian philosophy which is like a one or zero or you can run it through the liberal philosophy which is like one or zero and it's seldom they seldom met in the middle. Yeah. Now, it's important to look at this quote in the context of who, or all these quotes, it's important to look at the context of who's saying it. Annie Duke is a, a great poker player. She constantly is living in a gray area of probabilities when she's right. making her decisions. And yep. so even if you should play your pair of kings in a certain way almost all the time, if someone just three bet you around the table, maybe they might have a pair of aces. You have to... You have to deal with probabilities. You have to deal with the gray area. Yeah, and that comes up repeatedly. There are a number of people who talk about having the courage to live in the gray and not revert to black and white views of the world out of convenience, right? Because it, it is more convenient to say, these people are good, these people are bad. Or or always bet as hard as possible on kings. Yeah, you know, right, have, right. Have these rules like ready to go. Yeah, and at the end in the end or not in the end throughout life having developing and this is something you can train training yourself to have a higher comfort level with uncertainty is I think one of the greatest gifts you can possibly give yourself being okay with saying I don't know and I I, I, I say that more and more now uh, when People come to me for advice on all sorts of things, and I am not qualified to give any advice on the vast majority of subjects, but they want me to comment on something. They'll be like, how should we fix violence in inner city schools? And my answer, which is very dissatisfying for something like that, is I am not remotely informed enough to have earned an opinion on this subject. I don't have any of the information, so I have no idea. I wish I could help, but I don't have any qualified opinion. And that's a really, really important type of answer to be able to give, I think. Uh, it's. I think it's extremely important because most of us don't know anything about anything. Yeah. And yeah. we're constantly uh, ranting and giving opinions and so on. I was on a, a, a show last night. It was a live podcast about relationships and there was a panel and there was an audience and there was a host and the final thing was 
what advice would you give about relationships? Now, everyone on the panel and everyone in the audience was single. So when, and everybody's giving advice. And so when it came to me, I said, just the fact is, A, right now, this moment, we're the complete sum of every choice we've ever made. So look where we are. We're all single sitting in a comedy club. So there's no way I could give advice right now. There's nothing I could possibly offer. This is where I'm at after all of the thousands and millions of choices I've made in relationships. So we're here. And it's important to, to recognize that, to remember that. Yeah, and and actually, you know, one of the, uh, God, I wish I could, I think it's Laura Walker, actually, who gave this advice. I, I'm actually kind of amazed that, I always forget like my entire book as soon as I finish writing it. And then it slowly comes back. Yeah. I don't. It's it's a really odd phenomenon. So this is fun because it's starting to come back. And I want to say Laura Walker, who's just iconic in public radio and in, in many other things. I hope I'm attributing it correctly, but she talks about a. a I'm paraphrasing, of course, but a great mentor being someone who doesn't necessarily give you advice, but says to you something along the lines of, I can't give you the answer, but here's here's a way you might consider thinking through the answer. Well, right. I feel that's what you do with your books. Yeah. Like you're yeah. you're not in this book, right? Yeah. It's all these people you spoke yeah. to or, or or emailed with and you emailed with them with questions you were trying to personally solve. Yeah. I assume you weren't with many of these questions. And I think that's what makes the book great is that you're not asking uh questions about what you think will help other people, it really comes through that you're asking questions that you, you think will help you. And you're a person who's already tried to help yourself in so many different ways and you've written books about it and done podcasts about it. It's fascinating to see what questions you want to ask these different people. That's yeah. part of the content content of this book is that's where you're sort of hidden in the questions. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. So, um, you know, I mean, again, we, I have, you see, I have so many like different notes here. I could, uh, I could ask uh, a, a billion questions, but I'm also just curious too. What's, what's your next book going to be? What's your next project? <laughs> uh, I don't know, and I'm okay with that. I, you're in the gray area. I am in the gray area, and I think, I think for this year, uh, at least for the next few months, I really want to focus on not looking at the preview of the next five or 10 years, but actually working on a lot of early, I mean, trauma is a strong word, but it's not inappropriate here, to which I can trace back a lot of consistent challenges I've had in my life and a lot of sort of resentment towards myself and so on. What, what do you, what, you've referred to that a few times in, in the podcast. What might be an example of, of early trauma? Eh, I don't want to get into it right now. Yeah, maybe a different form, maybe over a bottle of wine. But suffice to say, um, you know, a lot of people have been through a lot of difficult things. And the what I've realized is no matter how fast you run, no matter how good you are at choosing the route around obstacles as you move forward, you just can't, or I cannot sort of outrun the influence of those specters. And I need to just stop, turn around, not get distracted by what might fill my calendar in the next month or the next six months, no matter how attractive they are. And to actually 
do the hard work to, uh, and there are different tools, some of which we already discussed briefly, uh, because the, I, I think the pauses that we take, the brief sojourns into the, the pit stop where we get new tires, some oil change. <laughs> if you want to be a high-performing machine slash human being, you can't just endlessly go around laps flaming out and destroying yourself. And so, so, so how do you, like, do you ever get a fear that if you, I mean, because like this book, I feel like I feel like it was yesterday we were talking about Tools of the Titans. Yeah. And since then you've done a TV series and this book, which yeah. is, you know, 10,000 pages. <laughs> 670 or whatever. pages. And yeah. so, so do you, you must have this feeling a little bit. And then of course you do your podcast, you do, you, you probably do other things. You must feel a little bit, oh, if I don't produce some output for the world, I'm going to somehow disappear. So this this is a good this is a good subject. Uh, I actually don't feel that way. Uh, I did for a long time, but uh, I do a I do a check in with myself, and I have for actually probably five years now. Every time I'm taxiing for takeoff in an airplane or about to land, uh, I send love to a handful of of people I deeply care for, certainly including my family. And then I ask myself, would I be okay dying right now? Right? And it's just like, how would I feel given what I'm committing to, given what I'm flying away from or flying to? Like, would I be satisfied with what I've done and where I'm focusing right now? Like, would I be okay if this was this was it? Like next 15 minutes, game over. And uh the answer's been yes. For you know, a good year, and that's not a desire to die. I have no, right. desi- I have no desire to die, but I don't feel like I would die with the music inside me. And I think a big part of that, quite frankly, was scrapping my entire TED talk literally like a week before stepping on stage and redoing it and getting up and talking about the the very real and dangerous darkness that I've brushed up against and the close call with suicide in college and all of that to just get it out of my system and into the world and hopefully a very helpful, prescriptive, tactical way where people are given tools that they might not have otherwise found. Uh, and I had such a sense of relief after doing that. Uh, I mean, once again, like joy slash happiness was not really in my vocabulary at that point, but such an s- incredible sense of relief from taking that outside of my head and my heart and putting it out into the world in a form that could help people either not go through that, what I went through, or to dramatically defang it so that it's not as difficult. Or or not as uh, much stigma around the topic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So after doing that, it's become easier for me where I, I, I feel like I'm okay. But you know, it seems like that's, you know, you're obviously a very hard driven worker. Like you, you, you put together these amazing books, you come up with these ideas, you do the podcast again, all these things that we've, we've talked about. Um, I, I, and you talk a lot about the process and the pro- making the process easier and what's the cost to you. But one of your questions hasn't been, 
do I feel joy when I'm doing this process? But just then you expressed that there might've been some joy or, or you related, you related it to relief, but there might've been some joy and happiness from, from doing that Ted talk and expressing vulnerability. Uh, do you ever think maybe, you know, uh, I've got a lot in me that will be joyful. That's also vulnerable. And I haven't really done that before of just working on projects related to that. Yes. A hundred percent. And in the last year and a half in particular, uh, and for the first time with this book, especially there was another question, which I didn't mention. So I would ask, what might this look like if it were easy? And very often there are a number of other hypotheticals on top of that. So for instance, if I have a TV show and they've slated two to three months for production and post-production, I might ask myself, what if we all only had two weeks to do this? If we all had a gun against our heads and we had to do it in two weeks? Had to, period. Like there is no tap out option. What would we do? And uh, so by applying all these hypothetical extreme constraints that that's that's sort of a secondary line of questioning that oftentimes brings up some really interesting stuff but the the new question after what might this look like if it were easy is what might this look like if i made it if i had to make it fun mm-hmm. right so for instance one of the questions in this book was purely for to use absurdity and silliness as fuel to help me to process some of the the deeper uh, questions and answers, which was, uh, you know, what is something absurd that you like a behavior or an object that is absurd that you love? <laughs> so, just to point out how weird everybody is, right? So, that was a question that was deliberately included for my own enjoyment. And what was your favorite response? Uh, there's so many. I mean, one, one that there's so, there are a lot of them. Uh, Cheryl Strade's answer. Oh, I love Cheryl Strade. Yeah, so Cheryl Strade, who who wrote Wild among other books, and and Dear Sugar, one of the best, the one of the best ways to write a self help book. Oh yeah, yeah. She's 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 very very brilliant. And um, Wild was of course made into a feature film with Reese Witherspoon, very successful. And so her absurd thing that she loves is reassembling every sandwich before she eats it. So she'll 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 open up the sandwich. And she wants each bite to be as uniform and uh, identical to the to the next as possible. So she doesn't want like a clump of avocado on one side, a clump of tomato on the other. She'll layer it perfectly so that every bite has every ingredient. And she'll actually do this also with other people. So she might reassemble someone else's sandwich if they're at the, t- at the same table. <laughs> so that so that's funny. So th- that almost feels a little OCD, like yeah, it could be. But I mean, there's so many weird examples. I mean, I, for instance, because I finished editing the last line of the four-hour body at exactly 5.55 p.m., ever since then, 5.55 has been a lucky number for me. So if, it, if I look at my phone and I see, oh, it's 5.50, I'll wait. I'll keep looking at my phone until it's 5.55 and then I'll take a screenshot. Hmm. Uh, so I have hundreds and hundreds of screenshots of 5.55. And everybody has something like this. Everyone has something weird. And we we all have something like that, and it just injects a bit of levity and also humanity into it. It's like it's it's easy to imagine that these people who are really successful in a given field are just like the Terminator. They just you know prioritize, execute, done, next. And there are some people who are like that, but the vast majority 
are imperfect, flawed creatures with a lot of weird, almost inexplicable tendencies and superstitions and weirdness who manage to build habits and good days because of structure and so on around one or two strengths. I think, I think, look, I'm going to, I'm going to wind it down now finally for you. I know I've, I've tortured you enough, yeah, but uh, I think that's kind of the essence of this book is that people have to recognize their strengths. People have to figure out how they can have the energy to focus on those strengths. They have to have the ability to block out the things that won't emphasize their strengths or will hurt them in some way. And it's very, those things are very hard to do. That's why, that's why the hundred people in here have very different answers. And 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 it's again, it's your process of learning this that is really the book. Like you're not, I, I you really do get the sense that you're asking these questions for yourself, and that's why the questions and answers are so sincere from so many successful people. I I couldn't even believe some of the people you got in this book. It's just it's just incredible. It's incredible seeing all their 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 answers. Um, I don't know. I feel like I could talk to you for the next six hours. <laughs> we should do like a, a podcast marathon at some point. But uh, um, I just, what should I do with my podcast for the next year? You told me last year what, what I should do. What should you do? I'd experiment with more for, uh, formats. Yeah, because I usually do interview. Like this is a, a little bit interview slash conversation. Yeah. Um, and I like that better because we know each other. We have a history. Sometimes when it's pure interview, I don't enjoy it as much. Yeah. Um, but I think the format thing is interesting. Like, what do you yeah. do to explore formats? Oh, I will. I'll ask. You know, what's the what's the craziest thing that I could do with my? What are some of the craziest things I could do with my podcast? And I'll make make a list of like absurd things. Like, oh, well, I could I could do no sponsors. I could do one sponsor for all of it. I could do a ten minute sponsor read in the middle, or I could have the same guest for ten episodes. Uh, I could interview dead people, meaning like I could interview someone who knows a let's say as a, a scholar of Benjamin Franklin and interview that person acting as Ben Franklin, right? Like all these weird things. And then one might come up that did come up where, which is combined with what might this look like if it were easy, which was, uh, you know, what if I just got like a bottle of gin and some soda and started drinking myself uh, or uh, drinking gin and soda, which I like with some lime and did a drunk dial episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like Pe that. Yeah, people wanted to do Q and A's, and I was like, "Well, you know, do doing a solo recording of answering questions is one way to do it. Doing a call-in show is kind of involved, so I don't want to do a call-in show. But what if I just did a post on social media and said, "Hey, go to this Google form, put in your Skype handle or your phone number, and from you know seven to nine p.m. ET on this date, I'm going to be calling people from Skype and drinking, and I'm going to get pro progressively drunker." which some people find really offensive, but whatever. It's like, I like to drink on occasion, so fuck it. And uh, then I'll answer your questions. And so not only will I, you get a wide range of different subjects covered, but like I will get progressively looser as this goes on and tried it. And I, and I was fairly sure it was going to be a complete disaster. And it wasn't. It was a really popular episode. And uh, so then you know, I had people say like, well, we, we want more questions from women. Okay, fine. So I did, you know, drunk dial ladies night edition and <laughs> just called women. <laughs> and uh, same idea, fantastically popular. So I was like, wow, okay, maybe this doesn't have to be as much heavy lifting as I think. So let me try another episode. What if I had like a round table episode, which I think you might've participated in one of them where I take one question and send it to multiple people and then they answer in their own time and then we compile it. 
oh, into yeah. like maybe that was the email you sent me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was it. That was that it. was <laughs> it. And so uh, then I yes, it was because then I had an episode on I think it was how to say no or when do you when do you quit when how do you know when to persist with an idea versus quit something that isn't working? I think that's what you recorded, yeah, yeah. and then compile that. It's like great. Okay, well I still love doing the interviews, but. There are no rules in podcasting. I love those format ones too because that's again, how can I make this easier? Yeah, yeah. How can I make it easier? And it's not decreasing the quality of the listener experience at all. You're just setting the expectation that you're going to futz around and experiment with weird stuff. Some of it will work, some of it won't. Uh, so for just for fun, I would do that. Yeah, yeah. all right. I'm going to take your advice yeah, once man. again. <laughs> Tim Ferriss, author... Of the tiny book, Tribe of Mentors, <laughs> six hundred pages. But you could, but just like Tools it, of the Titans, yeah, you could yeah. just sit it, and read a, this. It's a cookbook. You don't yeah. have to memorize a cookbook. You pick up whatever it is that you're hankering for at the moment, and with a cup of coffee, you figure out something you can use. That's yeah. it. And there's such good, valuable advice on each page. I highly recommend it. Um, so thanks once again, Tim, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Always fun. Thanks for having me. Hey, 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 hold on. Before you go, don't forget I'm giving out for free whatever copies I have left of the Side Hustle Bible. Again, I'm not publishing this on Amazon. I'm just giving it to you guys, uh, podcast listeners, newsletter subscribers, and the people who have already been interested in my writing because I know you'll appreciate it. I know we're all interested in freedom and choosing ourselves, and I've put together this collection of 177 proven ideas that I know work. I mean, wait till you see the testimonial from the guy who wrote the forward. It's, uh, it blew my mind when he wrote it. So if you've ever wondered what life would be like if you were able to make money while you slept or while you were spending time with your family or wonder what it would be like to turn something you love into a new income stream or even find out what you love that you could monetize, you need this book because I wrote it for you. You can get it right now at jamesfreebooks.com. Com. That's jamesfreebooks.com to claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible. Do it now. It's jamesfreebooks.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.